Welcome to Fandom Power. Hey guys, welcome back to Fandom Power presents The Fandalorian. This week, it's uh, week four. We're talking, uh, what are we talking here? We're talking chapter 12, The Siege. Once again, I'm joined here in studio by uh, producer, editor, Andy. Hello. And again, all the way out in Halifax, Hank McLaughlin. Hello, sir. Gentlemen. So, I just want to uh, start off by saying, and... uh, it took me a few times to realize this. We've now seen all of the trailer footage. Yeah, it's true. It is true. Yeah. We're now we're in uncharted waters. Uncharted waters. We've got four episodes left and we have no frame of reference whatsoever. I suspect we'll see a part two trailer, season, you know. Like a mid season. Mid season trailer. I, I suspect we'll see that some at some point midweek. Yeah. We've been dropping teasers just before the episodes on social media. Yeah, I find that too, and I I generally the last couple of weeks because I've been trying to sort of build our uh, our audience is like either the night before or the or like early in the morning, I'll like comb the internet and I'll pull up like rip down a bunch of pictures for that episode and I'll put them up as a hey this week, you no, know, it's as a bit of a teaser, right? Yeah, I've managed to circumnavigate the Disney apps that won't allow you to take screen caps. I know taking photographs <laughs> with my on a separate monitor. So. I would just say, if you have the app on your computer, I don't think they can prevent your computer from taking a screenshot of your computer, but I never thought of it. Well, you know what? Black. Man. Give you a black image. Oh, damn it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a logarithm. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Bastards. Anyway, it's The Siege. It's written by Jon Favreau. It's directed by Carl Weathers. Yeah. Apollo himself. And boy, can that man direct action. Hell yeah. Um, I went back and looked at his credits and he's like he's got a slew of single episodes of like kind of trashy action TV yeah. stuff. Kind of great actually. Our runtime this week it's 39:17 that includes our uh the recap. So I guess that kind of puts it in line with roughly the length of last week's episode. So two short ones I guess. And uh, our synopsis this week the Mandalorian rejoins old friends for a new mission. So any initial thoughts we want to get off our chest before we dig into the uh, the meat of it? Uh, it's it's doing exactly like we predicted. Um, it's 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 a it's a stopover before we launch into the next wave. Uh, yeah, if you will. It's yeah, sort of exactly what we said would happen. For me, I think this episode and the last week's episode very much hit that what I would say near perfect balance of uh, plot advancement and character development. You know, not too much of one and not too little of the other in any combination. Agreed. And the, the thing I really liked was last week's episode focused on one aspect of moving the plot forward, which is all that Mandalorian stuff that we love. Yeah. And this week's episode is moving the plot forward, but completely in another direction. Absolutely. Yeah. With the sort of other, so it's like we're, we're, we have this two pronged attack that, and it's got to come back around. So it's very exciting. I know we said last week that uh, last week's episode uh, the heiress puts the entire series on a collision course towards something big. And while that is still very much in motion, now you have this second, and I wouldn't call it secondary because I think the impact of what we saw this week is just as big as, as Bo-Katan's oh, yeah. arc. 
if not bigger. So when I say collision course, when I when I put that in context with this week's episode, it's like, you know, immovable object meets unstoppable force in terms of these heavy duty plot points that are, are invariably going to collide. Yeah, there's a, a Sergio Leone style Mexican standoff coming. For Very sure. much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's, uh, Andy, you got anything you want to add before we get going? A lot of connective tissue this time. Oh, my God, yeah. All right, so I guess we'll just kick right off into it then. So uh, I guess our opening shot we have, uh, again, (laughs) for the second time in a row, the old Razor Crest still kind of limping along. And if you listen for it, there's a very familiar sound there. The, uh, the, almost the, the Millennium Falcon hyperdrive fail. The stall, as I call it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one right there. Uh, yeah, so the Razor Crest is still in its shoddy but flyable condition as left by, uh, as we now coined him, uh, Longshore Mon, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's still my favorite side character, by the way. Awesome. And so then we have this sort of like this little comedic moment where uh, it's not played for comedy, but it certainly happens that way where. Mando and the child are, are trying to, to effect some in-flight repairs, and then there's this whole red wire, blue wire gag bit, which isn't really new. I mean, we've seen it many times before in, like, the gotta disarm the bomb, or, you know, we gotta... But it's got a very parentish vibe to it. It does. Like, come on, I'm telling you what to do, now just do what I tell you. I, I noted he's, he's showing a tremendous amount of patience for a guy that, you know... I was just about to say the same show a thing. a lot of patience. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he, he's quick to pull a blaster and blast you. And he's showing a tremendous amount of patience. Right, even to the oh, point where, like, go ahead. Oh, it's just the, the, the kid learning colors and wires and, and repairs and stuff. Might, might He might be fast-tracked. You know, he might have reached this, uh, the first quantum leap in his consciousness. If you yeah, there's... It goes from point A to point B very quickly. Uh, so he's exhibiting a lot of things that are getting him, you know, more more voice in this episode even and and more like you know he doesn't know what to do with the wires but he clearly is starting to learn what colors are he certainly knows the difference between red and blue certainly you know um i guess we could call them developmental milestones really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. between these last well last three episodes now where he's exhibited certain you know forms of behavior that i still say are very consistent with a human child of that age but it just goes to show you that there's a broad range of behaviors between you know um, you know, within a toddler, essentially. You get the impression when they finally get to the planet, and I'm not going to jump too far ahead, but that a certain amount of time has passed. Like, a lot of stuff yeah. has passed. Mm-hmm. So we've been at this a bit now. Maybe a year? I don't know. I don't know. Do we assume that one season is one year in their life? It's possible, I guess. Hmm. Um, Traveling cert- at sublight. <laughs> well, certainly there's a line that comes later on in the episode about cleaning up the system. And, and I mean, when we're talking about a planetary system, how many planets are in the Navarro system? And I mean, if they cleaned up an entire system, that has to take some time. Yeah, and I got questions about that. Yeah, too. for sure. We'll get into that. So yeah, the, there's this red wire, blue wire gag. But don't touch them together because they're oppositely charged. And sure enough, you know, <laughs> puff of smoke. And uh, yeah, it's priceless. But like Andy said, like, or, and you'd said too, Hank, there's a, this like endearing amount of patience that's afforded to the child and, and his sort of, you know, he's, he's resigned to the fact that it didn't work. Oh, well, it was worth a try. (laughs) 
certainly. I mean, he could have never gotten it in that compartment, so I'm wondering how you would affect repairs there anyway. <laughs> I'm sitting there watching it, and all I can think of, you know, is like it's a miniature Jeffrey's tube from Star Trek. <laughs> totally, totally. And there is a Han Solo, you know, no, that one goes there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of that, but with more patience. It absolutely it is. So I guess um, resigned to the fact that they're not going to be able to do any more than what they've already done. Uh, they make the decision to divert uh, from their trip to Corvus and decide to uh, reconnect with some old friends back on Navarro. Yeah, so um, from there we cut to, I guess it's a scene uh, down in the Mandalor- the old Mandalorian covert, particularly the, the forge room, um, as we see the big mythosaur imprint above the door. And it looks like the uh, looks like the forge has been sort of taken up uh, residence by a bunch of uh, Aqualish thugs, and we've seen Aqualish before. I mean, uh, the character Ponda Baba, uh, who got his arm cut off in the cantina back in A New Hope, certainly, and then showed up again in uh, Rogue One with uh, Doctor Evazan. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. They had a little cameo there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, there's this uh, scene with the the four thieves, and now they're trying to split up the loot. But one of them is like, nobody touches anything until we eat. And uh, they turn to this cage, and uh, turns out it's uh, the creature. It's called a lava mirror cat. Yeah, you had pointed out to me before the show that they're in the uh, in the post uh, credits sort of uh, production work that he's breathing fire on. Yes. What a cool little animal that is. I thought, you know, if they had played it out uh, according to the concept art, it would have been a very different encounter. <laughs> mm. um, still attached to her, so maybe we'll get to see it breathe fire. Yeah, really. Mm. You know, like. It would be the first time in Star Wars that somebody's had a, a, an animal, a pet, per se. Yeah, like you a familiar. I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... Except perhaps Thrawn. Oh, that's right. But did he have... Did he have the Salamiri in the, in Rebels? I don't think he did. I think there no, was some right. artwork you're referring you're to them. Right. Yeah. But it, yeah, in the Legends trilogy, for sure. He kept one around oh, yeah. his shoulders, yeah. yeah. Oh, story for another time. <laughs> uh, so what happens? There's a, I guess it's a kind of a clang or a noise at the door. And uh, the, the, the thug who's trying to make the meal says, you know, to one of the guys, go check that out. What is it? And uh, they're all kind of sort of trepidatiously kind of you know, on bated breath, kind of waiting to see what it is. And Buddy sneaks up to the door and then there's this like flash of movement and it's Cara Dune and uh, she quite handily dispatches. And I don't really know another word for it other than to say dispatches these four guys. That's literally what I wrote. (laughs) Well, talk about, we've talked about combat styles and fighting styles uh, on the show before. And here's another example of a unique fighting style where, you know, she's this combination of of mixed martial arts, go figure, and gunplay. But I found this scene really, really cool because she only drew her her blaster and fired one shot. Yeah, at the very end. I mean, yeah. she she, she did use the other guys. Like, there was a throwing knife. There yeah. was, you know, a lot of physicality, a lot of her MMA, which comes from her real life. I I, I completely think that the actress uh, like uh, did the did the, the everything there you see. I totally she believe did. that she did everything, including so. There's this point in the in the uh, in the fight where she does a, a a diving roll and she picks up one of the guys 
up onto her shoulders to use him like as a as a human shield. Human shield. Yeah. And I'm like, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, that's a ranger roll. And uh, of course, it's um, I had to go back and show Kim because I'm like, hey, this is the thing I told you about. Um, when I was in the military, this is a skill that the soft community they use it to like get casualties off the battlefield very quickly. I'm like, hey, that's a real thing. Like, that's really that's cool. cool. Yeah. Another thing about that scene is when she has the guy on her back there and she's blocking blaster fire, it, it became apparent to me that like blasters just, they don't just go right through you. Like they're like a physical object. Sure. And that the, 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 the light is like an effect of that physical object. Cause they do call them blaster bolts after all. Yeah, they do. We so could, the only time you've ever seen that before is when Chirrut Umway is using a stormtrooper to block blasters. Yeah. And that fight scene in, in Rogue One. But I always thought, well, that's because they're wearing armor. But clearly now a body can absorb blaster fire and not have it just blast through the other side. We could like like a laser would, you know, James Bond laser would cut right through. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Well, let's chew on that for a little bit because as the, as the, um, I don't want to say deep nerds, let's say as the vaulted scholars, we are in all things Star Wars. Let's, uh, let's bite on that a little bit. And, and, uh, certainly Again, I'm going to go back to the role-playing game because the, mm-hmm. these things are just such a trove of minutia, right? Yeah, and that's exactly where my brain went. Like, you can you can take a few shots of blaster fire in the game before you're dead. For sure. And in in the old role-playing games, like the, the paper-pencil ones, they talk about energy weapons requiring gas. So Tabana, Tabana gas that they were mining on Bespin was mm-hmm. used to make, to make weapons. And I think the idea is that, you know, your, your average blaster requires an energy source, so a power cell, and it requires Tabana gas. And essentially, those two elements combine to make a superheated plasma. So the visual effect is there because it's red hot or whatever color it is based on whatever right. gas they're using. But like you say, it's not this like this high intensity energy weapon that goes right through you. There's a physical thing there, that, that plasma burst that is dissipated over the 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 body when it hits it absolutely yeah so for sure there's a a physical thing there it's no no stretch for me to kind of to get to that well you really get to see it with the bowcaster and the way it's used in the force oh for sure just a heavier plasma charge yeah exactly i i guess in some ways amando's um his rifle is very much a, a similar concept where it uses individual cartridges I noticed that for the first time. I didn't really notice that before, but I did like he did he does plenty of single loading and single shooting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then uh once the four Aqualish are dispatched, there's this sort of endearing little little scene between Kara and the Meerkat where she's like having a one-way conversation with it like it can understand her. And then she kind of finishes off the scene by saying she's going to return she has to return everything to its uh she feeds it. She's very Yeah. She's she's super like we see she's come a long way okay from uh, hiding out on a planet yeah to then to being in the fighting pits just for cash right so that's another thing that lends me to it like a significant amount of time has passed here yeah and also speaks a lot towards her development as like somebody who goes from you know I was a shock trooper and now I don't do that anymore and now I'm just you know trying to make my way in a galaxy that I don't want to have anything to do with. But in this episode, and I don't mean to jump ahead, but like you see this, like you say, time has passed and maybe she's softened a little bit. And now her 
involvement in Navarro in a, in a legal capacity has maybe reminded her what it meant to be a soldier. Yeah. And so by the time we get to the end of the episode, and again, you know, you want to talk about leaving the door open for somebody to walk through, there's an opportunity for her to get uh, back into galactic affairs on a much larger scale, although she does not take it. She's sort of finding her purpose again. And I think so. There's at least three points in this episode where I like I really hone in on that. And I'll, I'll, when they when they land organically, we'll get into. Yeah, that. yeah, of course. So then it's uh, roll title cards, and then uh, we have the Razor Crest uh, on a descent towards uh, Navarro, and we have this really awesome establishing shot. Um, and I don't know if I quite I was aware of it, and I was aware of it in a casual sense because. You know, season one, we weren't we weren't doing a show, we weren't we weren't ripping it apart to to analyze it. But um, I guess I didn't really pick up on how volcanic Navarro really is mm-hmm. until this episode, and uh, I really noticed on the um, on the descent, looking out through the canopy, looking down at this at the city, like the streets of the city look like the the they look like where the previous lava flows had run through and cut channels into the rock. No, you're absolutely correct. There's a scene later on where there's a bunch of trees on a cliff and I was like, Is this, was that an accident? <laughs> there's yeah. a bunch of trees on a cliff and like a like a like a, a pretty dense forest. Isn't volcanic ash like really good for oh, yeah. like, for gardening it's, though? It built everything. So I guess on some level it's kind of a it's a neat contrast, right? It built everything. Yeah, so uh, landing the ra- we have the, uh, the the landing, which again is uh, another not played for comedy, but I mean it is sort of the result of that it's you know uh, uh, fishnets and uh, baler <laughs> baler wire that's holding the whole thing together, and then of course everybody dismounts and we're met by uh, Kara and and grief. And one last, the landing ramp doesn't quite. Open oh my god! Yeah, insult to injury, like no no drama. In the landing, he doesn't get to like walk out like you know Vader. He has to hop down. I half expected him to sort of wander out onto the ramp and then jump up and down on it to get it to go all the way down. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a good comedic beat. Uh, yeah, so um, nice interaction between our our three friends. We have this little reunion moment, and everybody's you know looks to be very happy about you know seeing each other again. You know, I mean, uh, Mando and Grief even go so far as to exchange the old warrior forearm mm. slap, right? Which I thought is a, a big, it's almost like, you know, in light of what happened in the last season, it's almost like we've made amends and everything's okay. Like we're really yeah, on yeah, the level yeah. now. That's right. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah, and I mean, the, you know, they fawn over the child for a little bit and it's like, I need repairs and how's my credit around here? Cargo <laughs> claims he can understand it, a word the child says. Yeah, and I, I didn't quite, I didn't he quite. He doesn't actually say anything, but he, did you say yes? Yes, he just said yeah, yes. Yeah, the old uh, baby talk. Pets too, but you know what I mean, so. For sure, for sure. He's evolving. It's like a doting grandfather almost. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good vibe. He's age appropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so um, he's like, we can work something out. And he's like, I'll put my best people on it. And then he, he motions to the two, uh, the two uh, workers. Yes. To start working on the ship. Now one is a human. Did you catch the reference about the other one? Um, I, I, the head shape and the, the gear it was wearing was like, gave me a Maz Kanata vibe, but it was a very full sized sort of humanoid. So no, maybe. So maybe. the other, uh, the red skinned alien creature 
who has no name in the episode, was actually a Mimbanese, like Gunny in uh, right. Squadrons. So yes. um, we haven't seen the. This is the I guess it'd be the second time we've seen the Mimbin species on screen. But if you're not a player of the Star Wars Squadrons video game, you you would never have seen them before this. That's it. But I played a bit, but you're right. We've heard we've heard the name Mimbin before. Lastly, sort of in canon in Solo, when when Han joined the Imperial army on his way to becoming a pilot he's actually sent to mimbin and there there's like a massive massive battle going on there so that's where uh where we've been to mimbin before and then before that one of the very early uh legends novels splinter the mind's eye which takes a whole different uh twist on mimbin was this jungle planet that uh, luke skywalker and princess leia went to in search of the kyber crystal yeah, have you heard yeah. what's happened to Dean Alan Dean Foster and his battle with Disney? I have he not. He hasn't received a single royalty from his penning of the New Hope novel or Splinter of Mind's Eye since really? Disney took over. And he's started a social media campaign against them to try to recoup his money. I'm surprised that a lawyer wouldn't pick that up. Well, I yeah, and he's lawyered up now. I would think so. Article. I just just recently read it, maybe two days ago. I would think so. Yeah, great, I definitely great will. Great novels, actually. Both yeah, written really well. Uh, all of the stuff that he did, and I'm not sure sh- who did them. Did Brian Daly not? Oh, or was it Alan Dean Foster? Aliens novels. Who did the original solo trilogy? Uh, at Stars and the Lost Legacy and Han Solo's oh, the, Revenge. The first guy you, uh, the first guy you mentioned. Was uh, it? Uh, not, Alan, not Dean Foster. Oh, sorry. Brian Daly. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I know they were con- and what have you. They were contemporaries with each other at that time, right? So I just couldn't remember which one it was. But I'm definitely going to look that up. Mm. Yeah, so they go off to repair the ship, and our, our Mimbanese fellow kind of does a, does a stare back at the uh, at the camera and looks kind of at everybody. Hiding his well, no, you, you get that like, oh, you're, you're a shady bugger. Mm-hmm. Um, he even f- kind of fiddles with his belt. I don't know if you noticed that because it's all that with up. his back to the screen. Like it's almost like he's... And maybe not just me, just sort of yeah. checking pulling. to see if he's got the device ready. Maybe, yeah. Is he always there waiting for Mando just to pop up? Oh, the events. <laughs> oh, it's my time. It's my yeah. time to shine. <laughs> maybe. Cue me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he is played by Ryan Powers, who We're, has a connection to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, cool. So I checked out on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. back after season one because I just, it wasn't keeping it, like, it wasn't holding my attention, but... I don't remember him. I don't remember him being like a foreground player. No. It's Disney. It's it, they do like to keep it in house. You see a lot of returning, uh, you know, like uh, I think we've kind Mario of Boston was yeah Marvel stuff, which is inevitably overshadowed by you know it was produced by Disney inevitably. Yeah. So yeah, no, they like to keep things in house. They're uh, almost hiring actors under contract, like they used to do in the '30s and the '40s. Right. So this episode gives us a sort of a similar um, treatment to Navarro that we got with the uh, settlement uh, in the last episode where they use lighting and color to mm-hmm. sort of set uh, tone. And if you go back to season one, when we first are introduced to Navarro, it's a very gray, lifeless. Desolate. D- yeah. This time around, though, you get this long establishing shot of that main corridor into town. And it's alive and vibrant, and there's an open-air market and vendors and people milling around everywhere. 
looking yeah, at you, Zuvio. Eye poking through too. It was all gray and overcast and all the other versions of it. Yeah. So I mean, clearly Navarro has come a long way towards you know becoming this like center of whatever, but it's it's definitely more alive than it was than we've ever seen before. And of course, with the <laughs> the same the way that Star Wars does this too, and they kind of there's a lot of recycling. The Zuvio armor, the Zuvio suit was in there again. I kind of want to check and see how much more it's in the other episodes. Yeah. Just throwing it in whenever they can. Like, Well, I mean, he was in the room. He was in the cantina with the rest of the bounty hunters. So just assume oh, yeah. that he was a bounty hunter. And now he's just, you know, he's still there. Mm. <laughs> Whether or not it's actually Zuvio. <laughs> in some ways, I kind of think it is because his, his entire thing on uh, The Force Awakens was cut. So... You know, maybe this is sort of up for those action figures. Yeah. He, oh, I know. <laughs> look at like look hard. at Zuvio. Who's this guy? He's a he's a sheriff on, on Jakku. He's gonna be cool. <laughs> what? <laughs> With that that weird holiday special from Saturday Night Live where they they had Zuvio and they didn't even know what his name was and they had a song and <laughs> yeah. it was really. Funny. Uh, so they step up to the old uh, cantina. And there's a exchange of dialogue about how, hey, I'm surprised this place is even standing. But it looks like it's all put back together. Mm-hmm. And uh, open the door and we step inside. And but just before you step inside, did you catch what's in the background? I don't think I did. There is a statue of IG-11. Oh, no. I totally missed that. You see it in I two shots. It. One, it's between Kara and Mando. And then just as they're stepping in, it's right at Mando's back. So it's in the street? In the street, in like oh, the okay. middle of the town square. I'm definitely going to have to go back and look for that because now I have to see it. <laughs> is it is it like it's in a darkness or is it a big statue? It's a big statue, like in a triumphant wow. pose. Oh, wow. I'm guessing, you know, to honor his sacrifice. <laughs> oh, I should have so watched awesome. it 17 times then. Yeah. Three wasn't enough for me, apparently. <laughs> oh. I'd take a minute here because I think I'm going to shed a tear for them missing that part. Oh, right. So speaking of droids, we uh, pop the door, we get inside and we see that the cantina has been converted and is now looks like it's a school. And up at the front of the classroom, we have this uh, protocol droid teacher who's uh, midway through a lesson on what from the from the dialogue. It sounds like she's teaching a lesson on uh, like galactic sort of topography and trade routes and stuff. I think Andy, you got a reference for the the teacher. Uh yeah, the protocol droid is voiced by Catherine Elise Drexler and played by Chris Bartlett. And what was the connection with them? But the connection there with Catherine Elise, she is a post-production coordinator at Lucasfilm. Well, I, I think it's cool that they're able to take people who are behind the camera and get them sort of in front of the camera in some capacity. It's almost like a, you know, we've, we've heard other celebrities talk about this and it's kind of like a, you know, it's almost like a reward, you know, for these people who are sort of behind the scenes. And certainly during COVID, which is, they had to produce a lot of the second season during that. You That's would right. Have yeah. To use People that were just, hey, I need a, I need the the key grip to put a stormtrooper helmet on. Yeah, really. So they probably are utilizing some of that, and it's you know to the utter joy. Hey, you've got a great voice. Come and do this line for me. I would be over the moon if somebody was just like put that copy down and come here. Yeah, yeah. Play an ugnot for a second. (laughs) So cool little. um, I don't know if it's an intentional reference or not, but I like the um, the board that she's teaching from. 
it's like this clear plexiglass board and it's very reminiscent of the uh the boards that were in uh the rebel bases yeah like i think of uh echo base on hoth and uh in the empire strikes back with yeah and these clear boards with all of the the sort of etched in markings and they look really cool yeah and of course there's a slew of orabesh on this and i i tried to get it all I'm telling you, the the translation this week is not as as good as what the teacher is actually talking about. But um, <laughs> so we got uh, we've got uh, what is on the board actually? So we have uh, solar solar limit, uh, orbital path, gravitational vector, key point, and then there's there's a two word. The teacher's standing right in front of it, and there's a first word I couldn't make it out, but it's something tangent, nice. which really means nothing to me, but. Wow, does she drop a lot of names uh, in the lesson itself. And it's stuff that, like, I don't think that there's been an on-screen reference to to a lot of these, if any of them, uh, before now. But yeah, I, Most of them are out of the uh, West End games. I feel that way, too. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of what's the earliest that I remember seeing any of the... Like, when have they ever named a space lane in Star mm-hmm. Wars, like, on-screen? No, the Acades Maelstrom is the closest thing they've ever came to naming sort of a sector or a, a larger group of things. Yeah. In Solo. But I remember the early galactic maps from the West End games. Me too. Like, oh, shit. Alderaan's here? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. He's here? Wow, that's crazy. That's far. You know, that whole goes back to that whole line with Han Solo saying, you know, uh, flying through hyperspace ain't like dust and crops, kid. Yeah, man. You know, and this it requires these complex calculations and you realize that, oh, yeah, these these routes, you know, they're not always in a straight line. You know, they're they bounce around to, to yeah. get around sort of, you know, interstellar phenomena. So they don't, you know, die <laughs> until friggin Poe Dameron can do it one handed. Well, there is that. Yeah. Backwards. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but they name drop uh, the Karelian trade route and the Hydean way, which yes. I thought, well, that's cool. If, you know, people who are familiar with that stuff but yeah and you you said earlier that she'd mentioned the katie's maelstrom did and i know we've we've heard the maelstrom before and certainly going back to those uh, the west end game stuff wasn't it just called the maelstrom then like there was no real name for it i believe so the first time i heard it referred to as the katie's maelstrom was in solo did lando actually say katie's because i don't remember that um i think so i I think so. It's I'd really have to a double, double check, but I'll I'll uh, I'll post it on uh, if I can find this. Sure. Post the the group after. It's really but a minor so. thing, really. But I just I'm like, oh, it's the maelstrom. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Oh yeah, and then she makes a point about talking about uh, Coruscant being the old capital, and that the new capital is Chandrilla. Yes. Um, and that's a nice little nod to the EU because Chandrilla was the the seat of the New Republic government in the. Uh, in the old expanded universe novel. It makes you worried about Chandrilla because we know by the time of The Force Awakens that Hosnian Prime is the new seat of the capital. Right. So we're like, what happens there? Also the... Oh, um, oh, go ahead. So Chandrilla being the, the birthplace of Mon Mothma. Mon Mothma. Yeah. No surprise that, that, you know, they would move the government to her home world. And there's another neat detail. It's not, that it, you know, it's not earth-shattering or anything, but she talks about how many... The, the teacher, the protocol droid, talks about how many moons that Kessel has and uh, that, that it's three, but... Two orbit the planet, and then one of the moons orbits one of the other moons. Oh, that's and interesting. Kind of, yeah, it's it's like in the background while they're talking over her. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, if you were really listening, there was a lot of stuff that kind of, you know, I mean, it's almost like you were there in the classroom learning the lesson with those kids on it. Really. Captioning really yeah. Helped yeah. So the decision is, le- is made to uh, leave the child at the school because, you know, there's no safer place for him. And then we can go off and talk business. But, we get the line, though, where I go, he goes, and he has to be convinced of it. Yes. And holy yeah, yeah. parenting moment, like leaving your kid on the first day of school. Yeah, and then trying yeah, to walk right. away without, you know, yeah, like, right. do I stand outside and wait till they stop crying? What? What? <laughs> <laughs> and then we have this whole, as the whole lesson is unfolding, we have this other comedic moment where, you know, there's a, a young boy sitting across uh, from the child who's, Eating, uh, looks like a, almost looks like those, uh, girl guide, the mint cookies, only they're, they're green and not, uh, not chocolate. Blue, blue milk cookies. Blue milk cookies. They very well could be, who knows? But, uh, you know, and he's just looking over and staring at them like, you know, typical for the kid, right? Like whenever there's food involved and he's just, he's right there. Right. Mm-hmm. And the boy's like, no. <laughs> well, he communicates that he wants it. He, yeah. he, he, he does a series of coups and and gestures with his hand. Yeah. His hand, oh, can I have one? Yeah. 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 He only, he only really sort of steals them after he's refused one. But the way that he steals them, I mean, um, have we ever had a usage of the force that was like pure comedy like that? No, the closest thing I can think of was when Anakin floats the fruit over and cuts it with the knife in that scene with Podman attack. Yeah. The clone where he says, Obi-Wan would be very cross if he caught me doing this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funnier when you do it. It's funnier than the movie. Very cross. Sandstorms are very, yeah, very dangerous. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, he uses the Force to steal the packet of cookies, which will make another appearance later on, which is kind of funny that, you know, they've lasted that long. He's already got one in his mouth. He's yeah. completely, I'm like, you know, happy about it. And the kid's not, it's not, he's not mad. He's just like, whoa. Whoa. What what just happened? <laughs> uh, so we move over to uh, this office space, which is oh, Andy, you got oh, something? Just one other little side note. Yeah, yeah. Uh, three chairs back from the kid who loses his cookies, right? Is a little girl sporting a very similar hairdo to Ray. So I guess that kind of goes into that that time period that we're at, where this episode clearly, uh, for a couple of reasons, goes out of its way uh, by design to connect the prequels and the sequels to the sequels so is this part of the connective tissue maybe i don't know they, they did mention before this all started even a year ago when they were in production of the first season that it was going to be something like i think it was an interview with Favro sure that would pull all these elements together and kind of weave them into one rope i kind of feel like with the stuff that happened in this episode that um and i say it sort of it almost feels like there's a, it's almost has a double-edged sword quality where it's like, I want to say that the Mandalorian may attempt to uh, write the atrocities of the sequel trilogy, you know, not saying that there isn't fun stuff and cool stuff in the sequels, but I mean, they were so divisive. And I think that, you know, very much like the Clone Wars and Rebels sort of recontextualized uh, the prequel trilogy Mandalorian may be doing a similar thing with the sequel trilogy by filling in some of the how to's and where did we, how did we do this? Yeah. I really did get the sense that the last episode was a, a connection to the past and that this episode's 
reveals later on will be a connection to the future. Oh, that totally makes sense to me. It's like well, a splitting point exactly halfway through the season, too. It's kind of neat. Yeah. But at the same time, it still maintains those nods to the original trilogy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Like yeah, we're watching laced. the original trilogy still unfold. It's like, crazy you know I mean? peppered yeah. throughout. Like, you yeah. cannot... Yeah, again, I think you said before, what was the the, the line about, like, uh, it'll... Who said it was? It'd be better when it stops trying to be a Star Wars show. And yeah, somebody in a review. What a tor- what a terrible line to say about a Star Wars show, especially one like this that just oozes, you know. And it it very much is what it is. If you've ever seen the test footage of Lucas's failed uh, attempt at a TV uh, show, The Underground, there's there's oh yeah, you can see it looks nothing like Star Wars. It looks like two stormtroopers are hanging out in a cheap CG. Blade Runner background. I did see that, yeah. And I kind of went, oh, I guess we kind of saw some of that with the, uh, on Coruscant in the prequel trilogy, that similar kind of neon vibe. Yeah, and you get it a lot in the uh, the Django Fett PS2 game, Bounty Hunter. I love that game. Like that a lot. <laughs> I loved that game. Yeah, it's pretty good. You're right, though. There was a lot of that. Mm. So now we move off to Grief's office, and uh, hey, it's the Mithril from season one working at the, the front desk. He's he's great in this episode. Horatio Sands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, certainly got a lot more going on for him in this episode. You get this impression like, and I I wasn't 100% clear on this. Mando brought him in in season one uh, on a bounty. And so now I'm like, wait, was Grief Karga the person who took out the bounty on him in the first place? It certainly seems that way. Well, see, now I start to ask questions like, was Grief Karga the head of the Bounty Hunting Guild? And I would assume that that's much bigger than the Navarro planet or even the sector that he's in. So possibly he was just a guild boss. Maybe. And then I'm thinking, if they've cleaned out the system and he's sort of the mayor of, of, of this town or this sector of Navarro, yeah. the marshal, where is the Bounty Hunter Guild? Did he not betray them in the season finale and kill two people that were his own he did. security? And he so, did. Is there a bounty on his head? And why is he operating so openly like this? And yeah. He makes several references to being able to flip weapons on the black market and make a profit. So I, I kind of wonder what's going on there. Is he still the leader Maybe. of the bounty hunting guild? And then why is Zubio there? He's our uh, he's our Lando trying to go legit. Well, that's it. But is he, you know, they probably won't even get into it. But is he being hunted by the bounty hunting guild now? Is there you a know, price on his head? I suppose in, on some level we could extrapolate, and this is just pure conjecture on my part, that, you know, given his connections to the guild and maybe, like, his position within it, maybe they have afforded him some reprieve, like, you know, I'm going to go legit, you guys need to move out, and you'll never hear from me again, and they kind of went, okay. Well, certainly a, a a bounty hunter boss is allowed to kill a few underlings every once in a while. Or you would think. <laughs> I mean, Jabba has no compunctions about often, you know, anybody. Exactly. exactly. So, yeah, but the Mithril is like, there's mention about, like, some creative accounting and how, you know, oh, and he's letting me work off my uh, my debt. And he's like, it's only 350 years. <laughs> so a long time. I was going to say, did the Mithril live that long? Oh, my God. And I love the, the uh, when he off gasses the. Uh, yeah. The it, mist there. He, like, <laughs> literally shits himself. It's like this whole, like, it's that nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he sees the man who realizes who it is, uh, blue mist. It must yeah. be the pheromone that they were looking for. 
I guess. From that first episode. But it was just perfect the way that he did it. And he's just like, oh, did I just do that? Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they move over towards this uh, table with a hollow projector on it. There is one more, though. Yes. Uh, nod back to uh, Jedi where he's like, I still can't see out of my left eye. Oh, that's right. Yes. About being frozen in carbonite. Yes. Carbonite I don't want to be frozen anymore. Yeah. So apparently uh, the carbon freezing has uh, <laughs> apparently has some side effects on certain. Hibernation sickness. Yeah. <laughs> apparently there's a, uh, you know, long lasting side effects. Mm. We go over to the table with the hollow projector and they start discussing sort of what's going on on the planet itself. And we're treated to this nice holographic image of Navarro, which I just assume is much smaller than we think it is based on the travel time to get from the city out to this Imperial base that they talk about. And that is sort of the, the issue that uh, Kara points out. There's like, Hey, there's this Imperial base here. And she says that this is the place where all of the troops had come from, uh, in the fight with Moff Gideon. And at this point, they all think that Moff Gideon is dead. They they saw the TIE fighter crash and they just assumed that was the end of him. Of course, that's we true. as the viewers, we know that's not true. Mm-hmm. Mando says here, uh, I'm only here for repairs too. He has to, again, he's got to be convinced to yeah. help. He's yeah, becoming yeah. more and more helpful, but he's always just on point with his own mission. So he's always reluctant. He keeps getting wrapped up in these side missions. Yeah, and then uh, Grief sort of counters that with, uh, but that means you're going to have, you know, spare time, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like, and Mando doesn't need much convincing because really from that, he's just like, okay. You know, like, there's really no, there's no, like, uh, there's no belly aching about it. It's just, okay. Yeah. So then here, here comes, you know, a potential criticism of the show. It's like, I know that that is, has become sort of the format where it's like, uh, what is it that people are referring to? I guess it's the sort of side quest itis. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I think that was one of the big, I guess it's a detractor and it's a, it's a strong point depending on how you look at it. But I mean, the, the analogy that this entire series is essentially a live action video game. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, yeah. here's the main quest. And then you have all these other side quests, which to There's me, so much totally fine. Yeah. Mixed into the side quests that like, they don't, yeah. you know, Parts of it feel like, oh, is this going anywhere? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, yeah, we went, we we just jumped light yeah. years. Where, like, maybe the side quest uh, that you didn't take is the one you needed to give you that key piece of information to really no. advance the, the main quest. None of these episodes have felt as side questy as the village episode from the first season. No, yeah, absolutely. But this one... You know, if we put it in the through the lens of side quest itis, this is like the side quest that you want to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, and because it leads to such exposition, such you know, like they they stumble upon a thing that they can't even possibly understand. Yeah, we as we as the fans or as the the scholars of Star Wars understand yeah. more about those tanks. Oh, than I the know. Characters I know. Staring at that stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of so the the crux or the gist of the whole conversation is. You know, we just want to get the Imperial out of here completely. And if we can do that, Grief makes mention that Navarro could become a trade anchor for the entire sector. So that's, you know, that's a huge move. And I can see how that would, you know, somebody who wants to be legit, how that would um, motivate somebody. It's certainly a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very legit, yeah. Oh, there's a line, I forgot to mention, there's a line that he speaks um, sort of earlier on in the episode when they're heading up to the... um, 
to the school and he, he talks about, again, about wanting to, in reference to the Imperials and, and it's sort of like, you know, uh, he says, so what's been going on with you? And Mando says, oh, I had a run in with the New Republic. That's and he's right. like, they should just leave the Outer Rim alone. He's like, you know, if the Empire couldn't settle it, what makes them think that they can? You know, which really leans back into when we were talking earlier about like when the Empire showed up on Tatooine in, in A New Hope, we didn't know like why were they there? Like, did they leave a garrison? Did they leave? Like, was it an occupying force? Like, what was it? <clears throat> so it really kind of throws that that whole it throws into question like how Wild West was the Outer Rim. So well, there's a line Kara says too about. Um... The base has been here since the Imperial expansion. Since the expansion, yeah. Yeah, so at some point, they, they, they went from being like this, you know, empire that ruled, ruled the core, and then yep. they started to branch out into the rest of the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tighten their grip. So there's a, a cool little uh, vector uh, image of the base uh, that they use, and, and my first thought was like, oh, that kind of looks... And you really get it when you see it sort of physically there. It really reminded me of the installation that uh, Galen Erso was working at developing the weapon for the Death Star. Oh, it's true. Yeah. They have, you know, they're just recycling models. And, you know, it, yeah. It, it's cohesion because, like, that's the kind of base they build for a lab here. Well, yeah. The base they're building for a lab there. This is our typical science base we really see that in this episode when we get into the installation itself that there's a common design aesthetic uh amongst all imperial installations and ships and how they just have that oh this is the empire <laughs> you know you just know yeah 100 percent. so the plan is they're going to go out if they can take out this base then again they can finally be truly free of the empire and uh i think the plan is to like all Star Wars, hit the reactor. Yeah, isn't that the thing though? Hit the reactor. Get the cooling towers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna take out the reactor, and we'll. we'll what is it? We're gonna drain the uh, the drain cooling. the cooling lines and blow the whole place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at first, I didn't. Re- I guess I didn't pick up on that right away until the second, third time around that they might have actually been using the geothermal, like the lava itself, as a fuel source to run the place. Maybe. It's possible. They, they were certainly, they had to contain its fury somehow. It looks like they yeah. drained a volcano yeah. or, or, or were suppressing it. Maybe they could harness it some way. I figure that's kind of what they were doing, like sticking a, you know, like capping a geyser and, and catching the steam off of it to, you oh, know. Oh, yeah, 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 like forcing it. Yeah, to, that kind of like. Directing it. In a, yeah, we're yeah. going to harness the power of this thing. But, um there's a neat little, again, talking about cohesion, as they they head out into, I don't want to say the wasteland, but as they head out into the, that canyon to get out to the base, we're treated to this cool little shot of the, the land speeder that they're in. And I'm like, what a nice callback to Luke's X-34. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that this particular model is from that same family of speeders, right? I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the XP-38, the model that was in such demand that Luke couldn't get a good price for his XP-38. Oh, so I don't want to burst your bubble, but I tried to connect those dots because that's yeah. what, that was my first thought too. Yes. Now, when I when I looked up XP-38, you know what came up? Uh. Basically, it's a civilianized version of the Flash speeder from Phantom Menace. Really? Yeah. 
has a similar design aesthetic, but it had those flat box uh, engines like the Flash Speeder. So I went into the Macquarie drawings and paintings to look to see if the prototype uh, Speeder was anything like that one, and it's not. It's no. really Flash Gordon looking. It's got oh, like wow. wings and wings. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it looks very sleek and more Naboo-ish than sure. a really speed-up rusty car. Well, that's the vibe I got off of this one. Like the, and I even went back and I looked at stills from season one, the two speeders that showed up uh, on the ice world to to yeah. take them back to the Razor Crest. And again, there's a similar design aesthetic across there. Like apparently, those two land speeders may have been in the same family as Luke's as well. Like, like Chevy's versus yeah, Ford kind of thing. Yeah, there's again a common design aesthetic amongst all these land speeders with those. The, the grills, I guess, that wrap around the front and down the sides of the, the, the body of the thing. And then the round uh, turbine engines, like it just a very like, oh, it's it's instantly identifiable and recognizable as, oh, that's a land speeder, right? Yeah, four seaters with the three fins. And it'd be fun to look up the in the source book and see if you could find the manufacturer of the land speeder. Uh, if it's manufacturers. if it's from if it is, in fact, in the same family as Luke's, it would be Soro Sub. Soros up, yeah. Yeah. From, uh, nine numbs, home world. Yeah, yeah. Celest. Yeah. So the plan is we're going to sneak in and overload the base reactor, and then we're going to get out before we're noticed. And as we're rolling down the canyon, you you finally see this base sitting up on top of the canyon wall. And uh, again, that's where I kind of like, oh, that really looks like the place where Galen Urso was working. Obviously, it's not, but again, similar design aesthetic. And then we get this first sort of like, hey, how far do you want me to, uh, where do you guys want me to drop you off? And, and Grief's like, how about the front door? You know, isn't that a little close for civilians? He's like, you want me to. I'm off a sentence. Yeah. So there's this constant negotiation and it's sort of like, I'm going to negotiate with you and then, then I'm going to threaten you, you know? <laughs> and apparently the Mithril is a, is an easy turnover, right? Like, yep, yep. He okay, whatever. Up, he does get his sentence commuted by 130 years. By the end of the <laughs> he does. But there's a neat little line in there, too, about him saying, you know, either I can knock off this time or I can leave you out here with oh, yeah. nothing left but what's in your humidity vest. Yeah, I, so, so now I picked up on that. that. You know, wearable yeah. so, climate I mean, control. He's got to be moist at all times, right? Yeah. Yes, I said moist. That, that climate control thing just made me totally realize we skipped over a, a huge kind of thing. Well, You're maybe right. It's mine, but... Uh, as the after the electrocution scene, the child and, and Mando are, are sharing a bowl of broth. Oh, that's right. That's right. Have a bowl of broth. But Mando twice lifts his helmet up to take a sip, and you get that sort of Spider-Man effect of his lips and chin. Yeah. But his helmet goes. Yeah, like it, the pressurize, depressurizing and repressurizing. Repressurizes twice. So yeah. what was going on in that drowning scene may have been panic. So. Yeah, I I guess. I mean, we saw it with Bo-Katan's helmet as well, where there was a. There was that sort of depressurizing whoosh. I don't think we got that, though, in season one. Mind you, did we actually see him take his helmet off or just saw him put it on the, the window ledge there in the I in believe the, the droid village? takes it off, and it, we could have been maybe, if the sound was subtle, it could have been the droid's arms that we thought were like... Yeah, maybe. We rewatch that scene, you know, with the lights off and the sound high on headphones. Check it out. So I'm going to... I'm still sort of not convinced about the whole... Uh, life support pressurization of the thing. It just, I'm not a hundred percent convinced. I think there's maybe yeah. that Could might be some sort of, like we know it has a heads up. So maybe it's like connecting to the rest of the suit. Oh, like that's entirely possible. Season one, he's got a plate off and he's making repairs underneath where the plate. Yeah. Is. Yeah. So perhaps that lots of electronics behind that. Yes. Not, not necessarily Vader 
you know, the pressurizing, but more of a like, you know, yeah, no, I totally get it. System coming online. Yeah. Like it's just an audio cue for us. Mm. Very interesting. Where are we out here? Oh yeah. We're at the door. We're at the front door. What's that? Have we ever seen a Mandalorian in open space? No, not that I recall. Neither. No, I don't think we have. Okay. Do you think we will this season? I'm just curious, like if the helmet's pressurized, but he still, it looks like he's wearing cloth on parts of his body, right? So it just, I mean, I know we don't deep get into Star Trek level science, but no. I'm just curious. I'm wondering if they. Spacewalking, uh, though, is kind of a, spacewalking is a trope, though. Yeah. And, and stormtroopers can walk on the hulls of their ships, like, you know, as we, <laughs> we saw in friggin' the uh, Skywalker movie, the last one. That's right. Rise of Skywalker. That's right. Yeah. So the, we're at the front door. And this is another scene where I kind of was like, huh? Because talking about that whole negotiation thing with the Mithril and uh, the Mithril keeps trying to make overtures about, I'll just, I'm going to, I'll head back to town. You guys just call me when you're ready. And, or, you know, I'll just wait out here. And they're like, get in here. But there's a line, and I think it's Kara that says it, you know, like, good luck with when the lava tide comes in. And that's where I, I really went, wait a minute. That's where I'm like, this planet really is that volcanic where it's like there's a there's an active tidal flow of lava. So I found that to be very, very interesting. And it yeah. also lends itself to why, because she's like the panel is broken and she's like, oh, I guess it's it not rated for lava, not rated for lava. Yeah, Mando actually says melted. So and that's also if it's tidal lava, you can see them actually harnessing the energy from that. Well, yeah, nature, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So not able to get in through the door, they order the mithril to pull out the the flange cutter, which essentially is a, uh, it's a plasma cutter <laughs> with some greeblies, uh, you know, smacked onto it. But it's pretty cool because we've seen, we've seen variations of this before with Chewbacca working on the Millennium Falcon and it's very much the same tool, um, but it's not able to, uh, to get through the controls to get in the door. And then it makes a point his... of it being for light plumbing. Light and such, plumbing. <laughs> which reminds me of the scene from Clerks where they're analyzing Return of the Jedi and they're like, do you know, do you think an average stormtrooper can install a, install a toilet main? <laughs> it really reminded me of that for some reason. Like the idea that there, hey, there's plumbing in this world. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe Carl Weathers was a fan of that movie. Wicked. So Mando's like, wait a minute. And uh, jets up to the landing pad. And almost immediately you can hear this like faint fracas. And then there's sort of the, uh, the Doppler effect of the. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. stormtrooper just lands in front of them, but like perfectly timed with the, uh, the of the elevator door <laughs> opening. She swears we get dank. Yeah. Ferric again. Oh, more time. I know another dank Ferric. It's very quickly. Uh, it's, it's going to be the, uh, it's going to be the frack of the Star Wars generation. 100%. Yeah. I use it almost daily at work now. This episode of Fandom Power is brought to you in part by CollectorSplatoon.ca. CollectorSplatoon.ca, organizers of the annual Toronto Collector's Platoon Toy Show. Check out CollectorSplatoon.ca, the Canadian home of Ian's display accessories, specializing in action figure stands for figures of all scales. Visit CollectorSplatoon.ca today. You're listening to Fandom Power.
just just checking my notes here. Uh, oh yeah, so they finally they get up to the top of the platform. We can see that Mando has uh, cleared the platform, and he's like, uh, "Thought the base was empty, huh?" As there's like three or four bodies laying around. But then the Mithril is like, "Hey!" As he sees the uh, the troop transporter uh, under a, a tarp, and he's like, "That's a mint Trexler Marauder," and goes off about how you know you know how much we could get for that on the black market. And of course, Mando's like, yeah, and it's going to get vaporized along with everything else here. <laughs> is, he say, is it Trexler or does he say Trekstar? It, it is a Trexler Marauder. Yeah, a Trexler. Trexler, good. Okay. Yeah, Trexler Marauder. Playing with words there, Star Trek backwards. Yeah, yeah. So again, yes, the plan is to get to the, uh, the reactor, drain the cooling lines, and blow up the base. And as we, I mean, I didn't, I didn't put a whole lot of notes into sort of traversing the base because it's a lot of sort of, again, similar design aesthetic and it's a lot of just like walking, but there's this cool little scene and maybe it's just me kind of like pulling at threads here, but I thought when the doors opened and you had the little speeder hanger with all the bikes, yeah, it kind of evoked the feed hanger on Naboo with the ships lined up on either side. It had a similar kind of look to me and I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. Yeah, Totally. But they make their way up to the uh, control room, and and you notice that the uh, security display for the hangar and for the landing pad is is out, and the controller. I think Andy, you got a you got a reference for that guy. I do. Uh, the Imperial officer, played by Morgan Benoit. Another person I don't know. <laughs> he has been an actor in Lucifer and Castle. I'm surprised that Kim didn't pick that out because Kim is a big Lucifer fan. Interesting. So yeah, uh, immediately gets choked out by Kara, taken to the ground, and then they proceed to shut off the rest of the security cameras throughout the rest of the installation. Sort of and like the low tech nature of the security cams too. I I like that. Like our yeah, <laughs> yeah, like literally like big you know big button with you know massive haptic feedback, chuck chuck like big switches and stuff. You have machines that can destroy planets, but there's like little video monitors. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> little, uh, you know, cathode ray tube monitor. Yeah. Hey, and we get a reference to uh, code cylinders as uh, they pluck the code cylinder out of the officers. Yeah, rifling through uh, his, uh, his pockets. Tunic, I guess, yeah. Is this the first time we've seen a code cylinder actually used? Uh, I'm trying to think of an animated, I'm sure there's animated references, but... Certainly not in live action anyway. No, I think, yeah, not in live action for sure. Yeah. So then there's this, again, uh, we've got the code cylinder. Now we've got a, you know, there, there's this tension and it's there, but, you know, I can't really describe it. It's just a lot of, again, it's a lot of walking, but the idea that they're going to get, you know, they could get bumped at any time. It's it's there, right? So there's this, there's an expeditiousness to, we have to get there to get the thing done. And they make a reference like, how long is this going to take? Oh, about 10 minutes. Yeah, well, they or make it to the. They make it to the much, reactor. Yeah, unimpeded. Really, they yeah. kind of duck away from a few stormtroopers who are walking by. They, they you know, they, it it still lends itself to the idea that the base has got a skeleton crew. There's only yeah. one guy at the comms. There's only a few stormtroopers, sort of like you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they get the door open, and then you're treated to the reactor room itself. And does it not look like the uh, controls to shut off the tractor beam? Yep. Totally the hope, yeah. It looks more like the controls to shut off the tractor beam on the toy, on the Kenner toy. I'm staring yeah. at it right now. Oh, it cool. Is, it looks so much like the Kenner toy. Yeah. It's great. And then again, it looks even more. You get another scene with that room where uh, another callback to a no hope where, you know, the scene where Luke and Leia are about to swing across the chasm. 
Yes. And then Mando's there sort of on the edge and he's getting shot at. And I'm like, oh, it's so evocative of that, you know, that scene from the movie. And they force um, the mithril out onto the catwalk to, again, reluctantly. Yes. Comedic lines, but he says one thing there. There's, a, there's no guardrails. There's no guardrail. so this is a per, like a sort of a personal joke between Lauren and I. But upon watching successively the 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 Force Awakens, I decided that what actually kills Han Solo is lack of guardrails. <laughs> yeah. You can watch that film and go every just leading up to that scene before he shouts Ben and then walks out under the catwalk. Yeah, guardrail, 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 guardrail. Suddenly on that catwalk with with Kylo, there's no guardrails. Yeah, <laughs> and I always just went, oh. I, if there had been a guardrail, maybe somebody could have saved him. He might have just slumped to the to the uh, catwalk. It's kind of funny that I know, you know, like, there's is no there... guardrail. For me, it was very much like, why are there no guardrails in Star Wars? Come on, guys. You got to tell me that world. you can't tell me that there's no, you know, movement out there that, you know, guardrails save lives, right? Yep. What the heck kind of design is that, that the controls are always over the edge of a chasm? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this? <laughs> I'm sure there's a meme out there that supports that. But again, we saw it. Phantom Menace, the same thing. Duel the Fates. Well, there's same like thing. these platforms, like no railings. What's going on? Yeah, and in, in uh, some of the video games, you get like uh, the Battlefront games. There's sections of the Death Star where you're like, it's just an open, like a football field sized thing that goes up to the sky, and there's just catwalks across there. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. what? This is ill designed, guys. No wonder there's a hole that yeah. you float thing up through. <laughs> so this is an interesting part here. We we drain the cooling lines and it's like, okay, we got to get out. And now it's the, again, we've had this a few times. What I kind of refer to as the, the run and gun, I guess Mm -hmm. where we've got to, we've got to get out. And so as our intrepid heroes make their way, they run into almost like, and I don't even get it. It's like, cause there's no door. They just literally round a corner and boom, here's two technicians. And I'm going to go so far as to say, I'm just going to come out and say cloning technicians, because that's what they are. Uh, these two cloning technicians, they're wearing the same uh, clone patch that the Kaminoans wore back in Attack of the Clones. It's the same patch that Pershing wears, same uniform, really. And uh, they're clearly working on something. And one guy says to the other, you know, delete, delete the files or delete Purge the drive. The drive. Yeah. The drives. Purge the drives. Yeah. Then they get jumped on by the heroes and they're like just destroy it so i mean one guy without with no regard for mando and his crew just like trashes the panel with his blaster and then turns to join the fight but they're quickly eliminated and of course we don't get to find out what was on the drive really so then our our heroes roll up on it and uh was it that they do oh yeah they we get the uh, visual of the four tanks the four tanks. Oh, that's right. And there's yeah. something in there that is very reminiscent of... Uh... Yeah, so there's a... We talked about this yesterday pre-show. Hank and I had uh, some ideas about this. And and I think at the end of it, I came to the conclusion it didn't matter which way you went. It all amounted to the same thing. But I thought that perhaps the... Uh, there's definitely some form of cloned body in there. And it, and it looks reminiscent of the failed... Cloning experiments from, 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 uh, yeah. But I mean, I was looking at the, maybe it's just me. I'm like, well, look at the depression on this skull. And then the bulbous hemispheres on either side of them. Like, does that not look kind of like Palpatine at his worst? You know, with those exact same details led me to Snoke. But then as I was writing that to you in the text, I was like, so why would Palpatine's clone have the force lightning damage? Yeah, (laughs) no, totally. Snoke have the lightsaber wound. I know. Even though. 
on Exegol, those tanks with Snoke, the multiple Snokes, yeah. all had the lightsaber wounded. Yeah, well. they did. <laughs> so, you know, like... Who knows? Yeah. We could, I drive think... a, we could drive a Star Destroyer through a few of the plot holes. Again, though, ultimately it does lead to sort of the same conclusions. It's like yes. they've been at this for a while, and it does ultimately, you know connecting those dots ultimately leads us to a viable body for the return of Palpatine. Yes. That's where we're headed. Absolutely. We are. There's a scary thought there was because we know he's relatively successful, which leads yeah. us to a place uh, in a, a sort of logical line of thinking that they're going to obtain the child again. Well, they're able to crack into the, the communications uh, network and they're able to pull up a hollow and it's Dr. Pershing. And, uh, he has a very long and very uh, expedition la- uh, exposition-laced uh, communication where, um, what does he say? There's a whole bunch of stuff that he says. I transcribed the whole thing if you want. Did you? <laughs> yeah, slicing the computer, we see the hollow tra- a hollow transmission from Dr. Pershing talking about his most recent experiments. He details that there's been a catastrophic failure, but that there were some promising results and they, for a fortnight, they had some success, but after that, the subject rejected the blood, which we can assume to be the blood taken from the child back in season one. And then he says, and here's this connective tissue where we have a very clear nod to the prequels where he's like, I highly doubt we'll find a donor with a higher M count. Mm. M count has to be midichlorians. It's 100%. Yeah, for sure it is. Nothing else. Uh, at that point, he recommends suspending further experimentation by saying, I fear that the volunteer will meet the same regrettable fate if we proceed with the transfusion. So wait a minute. Who is the volunteer? Who is the volunteer and what are they volunteering for? And there's many volunteers. And so uh, I was thinking perhaps they're testing the blood on living, breathing, already functioning, or not breaking down clones. Yep. And if they can get the force powers to hold, and yeah, they found the magic wand to try to give one of the clones the proper infusion, perhaps. But perhaps these clones are just regular old clones that are that are fine, and that they pick. You know, it's it's nothing for a totalitarian uh, regime to call them. You know, I got air quotes over my heads, but volunteers, <laughs> right? Yeah. But they could be drawing from a pool of of already clones to try to. The the main thing I'm getting here is that they're they're. Much like my my old uh, role playing game villain or sure. the uh, fan fiction idea that I had was of a like a a Sith vampire, if you will, trying oh, to yeah. drain the blood to acquire force abilities through the midi chlorines. Yeah. Then this sort of lends itself to that. But the 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 idea that there's a volunteer and the idea that it's a transfusion uh, may be just misdirection because that that points to me like not clones, but yeah. Clearly clones because of the badges and the tanks. So there are, there's, a, there's a lot at play here. There's so much packed into that those few sentences. I would say definitely that the midichlorian thing or the M count and the, the blood transfusion lends itself to some degree to artificially create a force user. I 100%. mean, we've, Star Wars has already proven, even though the midichlorians are the microscopic life forms that you know connect every other living thing to the force... We've already proven that we don't need midichlorians to have life. I mean, we had we had a clone army of hundreds of thousands of living things that presumably had they all had their own midichlorian counts. So, right, and whatever they, I mean, and they, they do give you uh, 
It's not explicitly written out, but I think there's a few periphery books. There's a book called The Jedi Path, where I think they get into a little bit of very minor stuff about midi-chlorines, but that there are levels of midi-chlorines that there's like baseline midi-chlorines that sure. all sentient beings have, and then there's like, yeah. you know, Obi-Wan has an exceptional amount, and the uh, the uh, the librarian has decidedly less than that, and yeah. then like uh, Dooku would have even more than uh, Obi-Wan, but that Anakin would have the most. And, and so there are, there are levels or tiers to the amount of naturally occurring midi-chlorines in your blood, right. I guess. Interesting. I guess there's the idea that you could increase your count artificially. Maybe that's again, lends itself to, I, I can't see other than, you know, specifically for the purposes of trying to resurrect the emperor to make sure yeah. that the clone body that they create for him is capable of of wielding the force maybe that's right. that's what they need it for but and, and so you get this um and and we talked about this just before the show uh you get ray's father yeah who is a failed clone of palpatine right only failed in terms of his not being able to utilize the force right and so uh, yeah you yeah he's i mean and 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 if you do the timeline there uh Palpatine's been at this a long time, possibly as early as the Phantom Menace. You uh, think Jedi. that there's a possibility that, and we, again, going back to, we said this sort of pre-show, but as I'm thinking about it now, like, let's go on that and say, like, Ray's father was a failed Palpatine clone. You know, was there no physical, like, not enough of a physical embodiment of Palpatine that when the, the clone's son decided to leave, that Palpatine just didn't have enough reach in the galaxy to deal with him or was that part of he the sent, plan? He sent out a, an assassin. Yeah. Okay. He managed to duck the assassin. Till yeah. Ostensibly Ray was five or six years old. Yeah. Or five years old. Yeah. There's also a, a, and I can't remember where this was, but I'll have to look it up. And and if the, the listeners want to check it out on their own, they can, but there's a, there's a somewhere, and this is very recent. It's talked about in the periphery stuff that the emperor that Luke encounters, right. In Return of the Jedi is already a clone. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, it's it's canon. It's somewhere. I don't know where to tell you to point you to where to look at it, but I'll I'll look hard when we get off. The yeah, end. okay. But it's yeah the, the the that's already a clone of Palpatine, and that he's been cloning himself ever since the Mace Windu thing, because his body is just breaking down. Interesting. I'd be interested in knowing where that what the source is on that because yeah, that definitely out. conflicts with the ideas that they're kicking around in this episode. That if they can already have a, if they've already successfully cloned him, then why such a big deal? Like when we see uh, Palpatine in, in The Rise of Skywalker and he's quite literally half a body, you know, on that support structure. So point. I'm not sure unless there was some decline in cloning technology, we lost the technology and had to reinvent it. I don't know. Maybe don't know. Uh, an unintended consequence of uh, Order 66. Maybe. Who knows? So lack of, you know, genetic material to test with after he got rid of them all. Legends and Expanded Universe has been, you know, has leaned heavily into the cloning thing, especially where the Emperor's concerned for, you know, the past 20 odd years where I can't think of the name of the planet. But there was a planet essentially where the Emperor, he took his most covetous technologies and he hid them away there for future nefarious purposes, which included a fully functioning cloning chamber. And that's how the whole Dark Empire thing sort of came about where he's like, oh, I'll just clone myself. 
I mean, you've been told a few shame times. On, shame on me. I just found the article that was in question. Yeah. It's from Screen Rant, and I just sent it to you. But then I just read at the top of the screen, update, April Fool's, Palpatine wasn't officially a clone in Return of the Jedi, but it's possible that he could have been. Oh, okay. So, fair enough. So it was an April Fool's joke right on. that I, I was just too invested in the end game to uh, realize. <laughs> That's fair. We've all done that. Woo! Okay, so then... Uh... This episode's still in the safe zone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they must know more than we do about it. Come on. (laughs) Well, it is Screen Rant, and I mean, you know, if they can't dot an I or cross a T, uh, you know. It's true. There's a lot of sensationalism (laughs) going on, unfortunately. So there's the big uh, realization here that, I mean, when Pershing is like at the end of the transmission, he's like, I will not fail you again, Moff Gideon. Mm. And they're like, oh, this must be an old transmission. He's dead. And then Mithril's like, "Uh, this transmission's three days old. So now we have this revelation like, oh, no, he's alive. And now Mando's like, and I just left the kid alone. So what does he do? I got to get the kid. Really reminiscent of the scene from A New Hope where Luke's like, uh, oh, they may have tracked the droids back to the home. And and then. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very similar. Super same vibe. Yeah. Yeah, So they split up. And then again, more more running and gunning (laughs) Mando uh, in in uh, Mando fashion. Gets shot, uh, I think, a total of three or four times yeah. on, on his escape. Yeah, a couple times in the head, back. Shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a great scene in the other the other group as they're fleeing. Uh, the Mithril kind of just, there's like uh, a bunch of stormtroopers <laughs> yeah, run into the room right. after uh, Mando leaves. And he, the last one is there and he, he reaches up over the, the thing and shoots. And just hits blindly him. shooting. It's the opposite of how, yeah. So yeah, there's a little bit of like funny stuff after where he thinks he's good at it now but he's not oh yeah <laughs> he just he got lucky i got one yeah don't get cocky kid yeah um cool shot though of the two stormtroopers on the edge of the cliff and then just the the whoosh as he goes by and then two blaster bolts pew, pew, and they drop right before he has the the cool landing shot yes yeah so good so mando makes his way rockets off and that's the big the big rocket uh jetpack scene from the trailer and away he goes and Kara's like, yeah, you need to jet that because you'll get, you'll move faster that way. And uh, concurrently, they're running and gunning, and they make their way back up to the landing platform where they get uh, totally pinned down by a squad. By two, by two stormtroopers after having taken out dozens and dozens. I know. <laughs> Just two of them. We're trapped. He says it. He says we're trapped. <laughs> Two, uh, anyway. two highly motivated individuals, yeah, you know, the elite guys laying down, uh, you know, effective fire. Oh, certainly. At <laughs> least that suppression fire. fire. Yes, absolutely. And so once again, you know, a nod to the Trexler, to the Marauder. She's like, oh, are we? Cover me. And makes the big dash mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. And then the tarp comes off and we see that this is yet another variation of the troop transporter that has none of the... The troop bays on the side, but ha- I don't right. know what they are. They're just kind of bulk. I wouldn't it even call them. like the, uh, except for the tank, tank treads on yeah. the concept drawing, it looks a lot like Macquarie's concept drawing. Does it? Troop I'd have to go back and look at that, but it it's looks a great. based thing in his drawings. But... Oh, okay. Oh, there's a part I forgot when I was saying that um, where Cara Dune has some, some really good moments of like yes. coming to terms with her. There's a scene when they're at the tanks where she suddenly takes command of the situation. She's like, Get on that console. We need to figure out what's going on here. Oh, right that's now. right. Yeah, she does too. And so it's it, like she understands that this, like, I got the impression at any rate that she understands that this, these tanks, this cloning, this secret project, 
because it's all this isn't a military installation it's, it's a, a lab, lab that's right and that sets off her fur like it, it puts her back up right and so it leads me maybe she knows a little bit more about having fought with the rebellion against the empire for so long maybe there's a little more to what she knows about this situation than I think on some level, maybe it's a little meta, but on some level, if you think about her as a survivor of Alderaan, on Mm. some level, the Death Star, uh, the destruction of Alderaan by the Death Star was an experiment of sorts. You know? Yes. And the the stakes of that experiment, right, are are where it strikes her the most. Like, and again, certainly the realization that this is a lab is a trigger for her. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you felt like your whole world was, if, if the destruction of your home planet was an experiment and now there's these weird experiments going on and it's, you know, it directly impacts your, your day to day because now you're the new, you're the, you're the law, you know, there's that connection to it. But there's definitely, like you say, there's something way more personal going on here. Yes. I'm just not a hundred percent sure yeah. where it's coming from. It also leads us into the line of thinking is that fan theory I told you about where they quite possibly the Death Star did some sort of damage to Mandalore on the way from from uh, Scarif to, Ta- to Alderaan uh, because it's on the map, it's on the way, yeah. <laughs> if you will. Well, we kind of bandied about this, you know, I don't think we talked about a whole lot of it on, uh, you know, in the show, but uh, outside of the show, talking about sort of, you know, Moff Gideon and his motivations. And we've already established that he was a ISB uh, Imperial Security Bureau officer during the uh, the purge. So we know that he was on Mandalore. Mm-hmm. And this week's episode adds some more depth there where he might be something more, which we'll get into later. But I mm-hmm. kind of wondered, like, as part of the, the Siege of Mandalore, like, I mean, we don't, we still, all the things that we've seen visually about Mandalore, we still have not actually seen the actual siege take place. We've seen conflict but we haven't seen like this definitive military action that basically brought the planet to heal no it's but true. it totally makes sense to me a la jetta and jetta city a single reactor ignition to take out what how many square miles you do that once or twice on a planet and you tell me that they won't uh, come to heal no exactly so or at least you start to get the idea that like to certain people that this is not an inhabitable place. Right. And that could, you know, sort of propagate the whole, you know, what Mando said about, you know, anybody who goes there dies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Kara hijacks the uh, Marauder and uh, she wheels up, pops the door open. She's like, what are you waiting for? An invitation? And, uh, you know, the whole let's go moment. And I kind of thought it was reminiscent of, isn't there a scene in aliens where Ripley kind of does the same thing with the, uh, with the Marine APC yeah, and almost the same line. I thought, well, that's kind of neat. It is kind of cool. Yeah. So we spin the thing around realizing we can, we're not going to go down the hallway cause you can't fit through it or the doors close or whatever. Yeah, the doors lock up on them. Yeah. So she swings it around and uh, he's like, well, you're not really considering driving this thing off a cliff <laughs> and uh, great moment to like the, it, it's, kind of comedy gold when they go over the edge and it's that all three of them ah, <laughs> as they go down yeah. and pancake the speeder at the bottom but hey at least it served its purpose to cushion the landing is that my speeder <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then this great sort of like uh, moment with the the hangar doors swing open and then the the speeder bikes deploy 
and uh, go over the edge, which again is right out of the trailer. But you know, just like Tie Fighters in an asteroid field, uh, those two, two guys right off that off. don't make it because they just bounce off the rocks. That was my that was my this week's try not to wake the neighbors at four a.m. Oh really? Oh, that was so cool. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately for them, bouncing off the rocks and stuff, but still maintaining, and then all of a sudden the two bounce off one another and just oh, just, just lose like, yeah. it. It was like two Tie Fighters hitting. Uh, Hitting exactly. solar panels and then smashing exactly. into asteroids. Yeah, that's exactly what it reminded me of. So then you have this like, and I just put in my notes, speeder chase. Oh, so good. <laughs> and then there's this point where she's like, "Man the guns," and and grief is like, "Okay, I'm on it." And he goes back and he mans the guns. And I really, really dug this next part because in my mind, you couldn't, you can't convince me otherwise. But there's a point where he's trying to line up that lead speeder bike, and when he finally nails it there's a very specific way that that speeder bike goes down, which in my mind is a, a direct callback to the Kenner toy. You know, when you oh, yeah. squeeze, push the, push the button and the way that it detached and flipped forward and launching forward, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't tell me that's not a callback to the Kenner toy, the way that that happened. 100%. Yeah. I, that. I, I, re- I went back and I rewatched the sort of the, uh, the trap from the previous episodes. Yeah. He, it, it sort of flies apart like that too, although it explodes on impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one, 100% is a nod to the Kenner toy. Oh, big time. Yeah, big time. So then the other two, they decide that they're going to pull up alongside and, and Kara takes one out by just literally pancaking him into the canyon wall, which... It's quite graphic, actually, yeah. except for the explosion. It's like, yeah, that's a grisly death. Bit of a no-brainer there. Mm. Sort of like, you know, Indiana Jones and trying to get up on the on the tank. Yeah, right? I got yeah. that vibe too, yeah. Yeah, which leaves room for, uh, I guess we'll call him speeder number three, I guess, who's able to uh, dismount his uh, his horse, I mean speeder bike, and uh, climbs up on top of the Marauder, and he thinks he's going to... Uh, Drop a grenade. Yeah. Unfortunately for him, he just happens to be right in, uh, in Grief's sights uh, and is quickly vaporized. <laughs> With the exception of his helmet. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, at this point, we see that the, the base has now, it's starting to go down. And, oh, again, we saw when Mando was leaving and he he went back to the reactor room to fly out the, I guess it's like a the top of the volcano. Mm-hmm. We did see that the lava had, had risen quite a bit. Yeah. So now the lava is really, really, it's literally consuming the base as we see like this gout of, of magma starting to erupt from the top and the base starts to collapse, but not before four outland ties uh, take off and give chase. I noted that their coloring was a lot like the Kenner toys, almost that dark blue rather than the light gray from a new hope. Well, it's funny that you mentioned coloring because I picked out some color issues. I don't, I don't want to say issues. I picked out some color choices in this one that I don't have a reference for, but did you notice that, these particular TIE pilots had a unique striping on their helmets. I didn't. I couldn't tell whether, like, and I, I don't have a 4K screen. Sure. But I couldn't tell whether that was just reflections from the, the control panels or not. Initially, I thought it was just the light, the daylight coming through mm-hmm. the canopy. And I watched it a couple of times. But on my third view, I watched it last night at, I don't know, 1030. Sure. Completely dark room with the curtains pulled and, and watching it again in, in low light, it's definitely striping on their helmets. So Well, so then it's probably reminiscent of the elite ties pilots from the Force Awake. Uh, yeah. Like, they have the three red stripes down their uh, their helmet. Yeah. And the, yeah, the ties also. 
the the elite series ties have that red stripe down the the same side that they have the stripes on the helmet yeah well these guys had like i i don't know maybe we'll get a, a screenshot of them uh mm. as the as the weeks roll on but these were like a a pair like the front crest of the tie helmet which is essentially the the, the rebel pilot helmet portion yeah. Yeah, sure uh, there's two two lines that come off of that and they go straight down to the to the tusks of the helmet like oh. yeah yeah it's very like, when you watch it in in the dark it was very clear to me the third time around but i thought you know maybe there was some significance to that that marking like does that mark them as like a partic- like you say a particular squadron or a particular class of pilot i don't know mm. and we have sort of gotten into with the periphery stuff the novels comics and uh, some of the uh uh, even resistance is as awful as it is in parts. I'm still get, trying to get through it. Yeah. But there are like, in, there are individual squadrons of, of tie pilots that are, they focus on and tell stories about just like the old, uh, the rogue squadron yep. novels were really, really good in terms of that. They're still doing that. I mean, even in, in the current canon, I mean, rogue squadron is still, it still exists. And then you've got this, what alphabet squadron. And, That's right. Uh, they've done it in, uh, in the tabletop minis games, there's the uh, there was a set that came out the uh, Elite Aces pack for the Empire, and it was two. Uh, I think it was Anvil. No, not Anvil. That's another one from Star Wars Squadrons. But um, mm. oh, there's a couple of unique Imperial Squadrons that have unique color uh, color schemes, and I can't think of their names. But it's not a new thing. It's just, I guess, it's just kind of new in live action. Yes. Yeah. So. The four ties give chase, and we have a again. I, I don't want to call it a trench run, but it's kind of a trench run as it's the uh, the marauder is like he's like take evasive, and you know I'll handle this. And uh, there's a there's a moment of banter between the two of them where you know basically they they kind of give him they give grief some grief about not being able to shoot these ties down, and he's like, if you want to come back here and do this, you know, <laughs> be my guest, but. You know, it's funny that I kind of actually thought, because he's shooting at them, right? And and I have to keep in mind that she is, you know, bobbing and weaving. But to me, I'm like, I know exactly what he's doing. He's not trying to shoot them down. He's he. I thought he was intentionally shooting at the canyon wall to to throw out the debris to screen their their speeder so that the pilots couldn't get a clear shot. Which to me, he was doing quite effectively. A solid tactic. They do drop into the canyon. Right. And that was the, that's the second point. It's like that must have worked because the ties after that, they do, they descend and come right in down on them. Mm-hmm. So then now he's got, he has to shoot them, but he now has a better, you know, they're closer. So he's in theory, it should be a little bit easier. But anyway, sorry, what's that? Oh, it's, it's true. And also like having played squadrons pretty heavily, I'm pretty sure flying a tie, I could take out a transport. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, from a, that high angle. So once they're in tight, it, it, it sort of evens the equation a lot. They don't have a lot of room to maneuver. Yeah. And you might be able to pick them off a little better. Oh, maybe. So, yeah. He uh, does manage to pick one off. He does. He nails the, the lead tie, and it starts that very much like, you know, when uh, Poe and, and Finn got hit in The Force Awakens, that corkscrew kind of spiral, and you see it, and you're like, oh, <laughs> and grief knowing that it's about to you know about to get hit dives out of his his uh, seat and of course the the speeder does get hit destroying the uh the laser cannon at least more laser cannons that way yeah and then 
so they finally bust out of the canyon and it's this wide open. The lava flats. Yeah, these flats. And you're thinking, okay, well, this is kind of where we can say goodbye to our heroes because they're totally outgunned, right? Totally. And again, sort of another inconsistency, right? Like they're able to, the ties are able to fly slow enough that they can maneuver the canyon. But as soon as they break out into open ground, they pass the speeder. You know, like there's some inconsistencies with their speed. Yeah. I do get the impression that they're about to circle back around just to get the the kill shot, you know, like. I do too, uh, on some level. But then again, for for, uh, the fan service moment, we have that through the the, uh, front canopy of the the speeder you know you see the red blaster bolts come through and take out the first tie and then the razor crest swoops by and they have that whole like yes like we've just been saved moment yeah and for me this this scene is really good like uh carl weathers made some awesome directing choices here to show that combat from a distance and then from the child there's one scene where it's from the child's pov inside the cockpit as he's bearing down on a TIE fighter. And then there's another little scene where it's from the gun underneath the riser. Yeah. POV. And then there's, you know, like, and then there's through the micro binoculars as Karga's looking up. So th- he's actually mixing a lot of different POVs and giving it a real sort of tense, yeah. fast, rapid feel. It's really, really good directing here. Actually. I very much enjoyed it for a lot of the same reasons, the multi-perspective view of the fight. I enjoyed it. Did you catch the child? Like, and this is the difference, right? Like he, Mando knows that this is a life or death moment, right? And mm-hmm. then he throws the, once he takes out the, um, that second TIE fighter, there's this great moment where he's just sort of hanging there and he's just running on pure velocity where there's this hang time moment where he just kind of sits there with the, uh, the air brakes open and then just points the ship down. And once he's in that perfect angle, he just like hammers the throttle forward, lines it up for the run. So for me, that's, it was very much like the kid, the child was on a, a roller coaster. Ride yes. You see him with his arms up. Climbing, you see him climb <laughs> from a distance, uh, you know, from the POV of the guys in the, in the transport. Yeah. And he's climbing and the kid's got his arms up and then they reach the apex of the climb with that scene where you talk about, he just sort of stalls that hang time. Yeah. And and the kid is again. They show him just like ah. It's like this big. He's loving it. You could almost hear him. Wee. Absolutely, I would not have been disappointed with a great big wee right there. Yeah. Uh, So then I I wrote in a spiraling corkscrew maneuver, both the crest and the last tide dance to the death. Oh, it's so good the way he spins instead of flying. You know, you see because wedge flies through the the smoke of the 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 one tie that he destroys at the Battle of the Death Star, but he he like spins around it dart like he comes off the other side in a spiral yeah so good he manages to do the uh corny anakin spin maneuver without calling it first like it's a super move oh <laughs> yeah 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 spinning's a good idea but, <laughs> <laughs> but so yeah no that scene was super good especially the way it was shot there was some like snap uh snap zooms to it there was uh, uh yeah it was really really well done man i think the fact that you know from the 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 tie pilot's perspective he had a lock like he had a solid like like target lock and that I think, lets me see that it's not a sure thing either even I, a target lock i felt like that was a the the whole that's why i call it a dance i think i think mando knew I mean that he was dead to rights and I think that's the purpose of the spin like even though you've got me lined up if I'm if I'm rotating there's still a chance that just the way that your cannons are pointed that I may skirt sort of the edges of that yeah 
Um, it definitely works in the squadrons game and also sharp turns and maneuvers break locks on missiles. And yeah, stuff. So yeah, they do for that too. And of course, Mando comes out the other end of it. Um, awesome shot though. When that last tie, um, I mean, I know like at this point you clearly it's, it's CG, but it's done so well. The, the break apart, how it, how the, uh-huh. the wing comes off and the portion of the, the, the steel, uh, the ball, the cockpit ball starts to break apart. I thought this is really well done. It's my favorite dog fighting I've seen in Star Wars so far. Yep. And there's been a bunch. Uh, there has been, yep. My favorite. Yeah, because it's actual dog fighting. It's not, you yep. know, it's not a car chase. It's not a, you know, it's not like the scene from Empire with the bajillion ships just flying in one direction, not shooting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I know it's the uh, the filmmaking style from the 40s when in the 50s when they were doing all the World War II fighter pilot movies. Yeah, yeah, very much. But, Lucas focused on hard, but by taking the POV out of the cockpit and and look like from the ground and from above and from the sides, it's yeah. it's so much more uh, chaotic and, and it's sort of you know I, I really enjoy that. that yeah, that's yeah, filming yeah. a dogfight, man, totally. So then I uh, I kind of put here in my notes. I like pulling out of the spiral. The child vomits on himself <laughs> as if he had just come <laughs> off an amusement park ride. <laughs> I got the roller coaster vibe the whole scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then it's kind of funny, like, cause then it's like, Hey, that's some great flying. It's like, uh, are you going to land? No, I got I got some in-flight, uh, in-flight yeah. maintenance I got to yeah. do as yeah. he's trying to like dab sure. the, the puke off of Another the kid. Another dad moment. Yeah, totally. Let me buy you a drink. Uh, no, I can't right now. I'm gonna have yeah. To take a right yeah. 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 On board maintenance. I wrote puke patrol. Let's see if there's a stain on his tunic in the next episode for continuity. I bet you there will be. Nice. Cause I don't think Mando does a whole lot of laundry. No, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Although I did notice, so there's this, and it's probably really esoteric and grasping at straws, and it could just be a different palette, but on the Disney app, yep, where they show the Mandalorian streaming now, there's a picture of Grief Karga and Cara Dune and the Mandalorian. And the Mandalorian, instead of wearing the gray tunic under his armor, yep. he's wearing a purple tunic. Interesting. It's very different. And it could just be they've tinted the image differently. Maybe. I know those. Really uh, wearing a purple tunic. One of the images I posted up for this week's uh, episode had the three of them together, and it was from the Entertainment Weekly uh, photo shoot that came out. Yes. And uh, everybody looks pretty clean in that. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah, glam shots. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So we get a little uh, tonal shift here. Mando departs. You know, says his goodbyes. You know, good flying out there. And then we have a scene of the uh, just outside the city, and we have a familiar pair of X-wings sitting there. Mm-hmm. Roll back to uh, Grief's office, and he's sitting there with his feet up on the table. And lo and behold, it's Captain Carson Tava taking a field report. <laughs> just like so, again, lending itself to that whole you know traffic cop thing. And and there he is. You know, is there anything else you want to tell me? Calls him officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they have this whole uh, exchange about you know what had just happened with the base, and uh, Tava makes an overt sort of overture about uh, and the Razor Crest, and Grief very quickly is like, I never said anything about a Razor Crest, and then he try you know Carson tries to pressure him and say you know, well you're transponder logs, but I mean Grief is way too quick. And way too streetwise for that. He's like, listen, the control droid can't. I can't distinguish anything pre-Empire. That's awesome. Yeah, totally covering his ass. Which well, you know, he's got a stalemate too because he just accepts it. You know, I walk away. Okay, fine. 
Yeah. I know, yeah, you, yeah. I know you're lying to me, but I can't prove it. So. Exactly. Not a Columbo moment for him. That's for sure. <laughs> Not a Columbo moment. <laughs> yeah. So then again, like you say, there's that whole moment. Well, if anything else comes up, he's like, I'll be sure to send you, send you a message. Um, How great is that guy's life now that he's been in two episodes? Two episodes. And the chances of seeing him again, I think, are, high. are only going to go up. Yep. Yeah, they're high. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so outside, Cara Dune is leaning up against a pole or something, and she's throwing uh, tidbits at the uh, the lava meerkat, who is uh, still hanging around. And... Uh, Carson stops to have a little exchange with her and goes on about how, uh, what does he say? He says, um, uh, your record shows that you were, uh, in the rebellion and, uh, you know, we could use good people. And she's like, uh, I'm not a joiner blue. But then he's like, so this whole, the blue thing. Mm -hmm. So you had asked me what I thought about the blue thing. And I I think you had a a particular sort of thought process. I thought maybe blue squadron, but like, and then I started wondering after I talked to you, like, do these, do they actually know one another a little bit? Like, I not like almost Fred wondered at, at dinner, but like that they passed each other in a rebel base before, like that maybe we don't know what his call sign is. Clearly, in his his duties, he's been he's been able to access her service record. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, there's that recognition, and I think that's kind of the whole. Well, he makes sort of he alludes to that about Alderaan and and sort of you know I served during Alderaan, so it's clearly... funny because she she since we met her she's been a joiner, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right like you know for the right cause, yeah, yeah. But he says to her, oh, he says, um, I served during Alderaan. Did you lose anyone? And of course, you before she said it, I've already mouthed the words. I've lost right. everyone. Loaded question, yeah, right? Totally he's loaded. A, he's actually he's. You know, that's a tactic to evoke an emotional yeah. response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, he says, and this is, a, this is the thing where I kind of go like, there's a whole other, I don't want to call it a subplot, but this is where like, again, we talked about this before about, you had mentioned Hank about the First Order uh, kind of growing from within the New Republic. Mm-hmm. And he says, something's going on out here. They don't believe it in the core worlds, but the incidents aren't isolated and it needs to be stopped before it's too late. He doesn't say he doesn't say what it is, no. but if if there are more weird imperial goings ons, you know, is this alluding to that, like the the formation of the first order? I I strongly believe so. Um, I mean, we know that that it's it's kind of weird to operate from a place where you know the end game, yeah, and then not to have the plots stall and stuff on on very typical things. You still want to do things that move the plot to that end game, but that are interesting and twisty. Yeah. And, and so yeah, I, I do think that it absolutely, that's the, that's the end game that we're headed for. And that, that there's a, a larger, they're alluding to it anyway, that right. there's a larger nefarious plot going on here. And we certainly get that from the next scene. <laughs> yeah, we totally do. Mm. Um, but not before, uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, that whole, opening a door and leaving it open for that character to step through. And he very much does that when he says, but we could still use you. And before he walks away, he puts his, uh, his badge, his basically his police badge. Mm -hmm. He puts it down for her. You know, it's, it's like, all you got to do is pick it up. All you got to do is pick it up and you're in. Now she doesn't pick it up, but it's there. So you can't tell me that 
she's probably picked it up, put it away somewhere. And, you know, we're going to get a moment with her later on down the road where she's going to be reflecting on that. And she's going to have this moment where she's kind of maybe holding it and, and sort of thinking about her life and sort of pondering it through this badge. And I seriously think that she's going to have a major arc going forward where she's going to get involved in a major way. So for me, before I watched it with descriptive uh, audio, yeah, uh, I had this whole thought process because I came at this about six different ways, actually. Yeah. Uh, so he puts this object on the table, and I immediately thought before the descriptive audio implicitly says it's a badge. Yep. doesn't say it's his badge, but nope. implicitly does say it's a badge. It's a badge. And, and the first indication of that was actually when you when I read your notes. Yeah. I hadn't watched it with descriptive video. Oh, yet. okay, okay. So I my first thought was a medal from the sure. Battle of Alderaan. Yep. I totally so I buy that. All the medals from the video games. Remember the X Wing versus Time yes, medal? Yes. And all that's so I started looking like looking for those three red stripes. Yep. Because I couldn't find them anywhere in that fashion. Okay. And then I thought, okay, well, if it's not a medal that I'm familiar with, perhaps it's a communicator similar to the the tracking fob that Leia and Finn have yep. on Ray. Yep. Sort of thinking that. And then as soon as you said badge, and then I watched the descriptive audio, I was like, oh, he, he's in me. Wes means that he heard the word badge, so that's how he knows that. Yeah. Then I started thinking, did he just deputize? The oh, first time, did oh he yeah. Just like, I'm sorry that I failed at the Battle of Alderaan. <laughs> and then I started thinking, no, wait. What he did there was yeah. he deputized her, whether yeah. she likes it or not. Maybe that's that was that's my final stance. Funny you say that. Like, yeah, because that's the my final stance. The descriptive audio makes a point to tell you that she balls up her hands into fists, like, mm-hmm. and then kind of relaxes. So like, and it describes the crap out of the trinket. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. It, it talks about the fl- the. Uh, the Phoenix logo. It talks yep. about the three red stripes. It talks yep. about the Pentagon shape of it. It it actually goes overboard describing it, which almost means yeah. this is a much larger plot point. Yeah. So I yeah. I think again, in terms of like you know, opening a door, it's wide open now, and all she's yeah. got to do is is literally pick it up and and go through the door. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna harp on that whether she likes it or not part of it. Well, now that you say that. I, uh, I tend to agree with that. Yes, sir. Whether that, whether she accepts that responsibility, it has, it's been afforded to her. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we get a, uh, what we cut. It's a wipe, uh, cut to a shot of uh, empty space. And, uh, in true star Wars fashion, we get an overhead pass of what we now know is an Architans light cruiser, which, uh, again, Ships that have uh, appeared in other sources. This one, uh, Architans, I think we were introduced to them back in Rebels. Uh, Clone Wars. They Were they were, were they in Clone Wars? Ships. They were Republic ships that were, yeah. And then they were, the Empire redesigned them for light cruisers. Oh, okay. Or command cruisers, actually. Yeah. Yeah, okay. we first saw them in Rebels and the uh, the Republic had them. Yeah, Clone Wars. Uh, sorry, Clone yeah, Wars. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I guess they were there. No, you're right. You are right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now that I think about it, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Architans, big three, the three, yeah, they were even called uh, the same, the same thing. But, yeah, yeah. So this light cruiser passes overhead, very much like the Star Destroyer shot from A New Hope. Uh, and then we cut to a scene, which I assume is the bridge, 
mm-hmm. where there's a young female officer and she answers a, a hollow call. And uh, lo and behold, Shady Mimbanese from the beginning of the episode is there telling her that he's installed the tracking device on the crest and is now just calling in to report that. But she makes a point to, to uh, again, and this maybe is alluding to that bridge between uh, Jedi and the sequel trilogy, you will be well rewarded in the new era. The new era. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's almost foreboding. It is. Maybe not as foreboding as what she does next when she goes off the bridge to go on report. Um, and we're we're left with this scene of like a set of double doors. And the double doors crack open and there's this rolling fog and it's kind of poorly lit for a second. And then the camera kind of focuses and holy crap, there's Gideon in this room that's lined with, you don't really, you don't really know at the beginning, but there's definitely bodies, uh, troopers of some kind, black clad, black clad individuals lining the walls of this room. Certainly. And um, she does her little part to say that we've, we've put the tracking beacon and he has his lines like, finally we'll have them and all that good super villainy. Yeah. He he takes a moment to stare at one of them and it's from the, I don't know what to call it yet, but it's from that object or suit or robots point of view. Yeah. And you get the sort of the side of the helmet in the back. And then as the episode is actually ending, you're, you're getting that that drawback, and you, you get to see how many there are. And I there's quite a few. My first thoughts were purge troopers, and I'll tell you why. Because of the very similar helmet shape to the purge troopers from the video game, but then yep. even more so from the fact that the purge troopers uh, in canon are the last generation of clones, of the Camino clones. Yeah, and I thought, what a great opportunity to utilize either Dee Bradley Baker's voice or. Yep. Um, to the actual actor Tamara Morrison. Yep. And um, but then the descriptive audio, she the the narrator describes them as dark troopers, and not as the dark trooper. Sure. But in a sense of uh, Gideon stares at the dark troopers. But yeah. Now, so that means something more to you and I, and to maybe some of the listeners that dark troopers are are a thing from from the video games and from the Dark Empire series. Right. And and the more I look at it, the more I'm like. These could be eight or ten foot tall battle suits. Yeah, uh, and and then you get into the Dark Empire, Dark Troopers, where you have these guys running around wielding lightsabers with minor force abilities, and oh, my brain, <laughs> my brain is going crazy right now. Mine too, mine too, and and my again, my initial reaction was, oh, these are purge troopers, mm-hmm. just because they're. They're kind of hidden in shadow. You don't get a real clear look at them, but you sort of get general generalized shapes. And and my first thought was, well, the helmet shape is kind of similar and it is kind of shiny black and the purge troopers are, you know, shiny black. And then we had talked sort of pre-show about it and, and I, I started second guessing and it's like, I kind of had to go back and revisit sort of like, you know, what is a dark trooper and, and what are the origins of those? And, and right. like you say, there's, you know, there's a couple of EU references for them. They're like the Dark Empire series and, uh, oh Lord, uh, Dark the Force, Dark the Forces. Dark Forces video game. And then I started going sort of like, what is it? What is a Dark Trooper? And like, okay, well, there's, there are multi uh, versions of those and sort of like the second and third iterations of those were meant to be 
wearable exosuits, right? So exactly. I mean, it could very it could very well be that. But then I go back and I look at what did we see on screen, and I'm like, and it, it kind of hit me. It's like, well, there's that fog that rolled out there, like so that there to me, there's a very right. distinct. There's a very distinct temperature difference between that chamber and the rest of the ship. And that could be for a couple of reasons. I mean, uh, certainly electronics and heat do not go well together. So could we be cooling them because they are, in fact, uh, droids? But that doesn't make sense from, you know, what we know about droids in Star Wars. There's never been a never been a requirement to have to cool a droid before. Not to that level, but. If we look at them from the perspective that maybe this is some kind of hybrid, you know, amalgamation of a dark trooper and a purge trooper, there certainly would be some precedent to have the room colder to preserve tissue and to slow metabolic processes, right? As well, if it was for a me, person. The mist was indicative of organics. We yeah. See we see the mist in a couple different places throughout Star Wars. We see it when when ships depressurize or when That's ships right. land, they, they vent some sort of gases. Yeah. Uh, we, we certainly see there's a little bit of mist comes out of Vader's meditation chamber. Yeah. Uh, things of that nature. So it does lend you to, to like, I, I did, once I focused in on that, I was like, no, I, I have, I strongly feel that these are organic uh, beings. Yeah. Possibly in some sort of stasis. That's, and I tend to agree with that. And I mean, maybe it's just me, maybe it's my eyes, maybe it's because I am yeah. watching it on a 4K TV, but like at at the very least, I'm inclined to believe that the, the first couple of troopers were actually people, actors in a suit because there was some kind of, it looked like there was some subtle back and forth, like, you know, when you're told to stand still, but you can't stand still because you kind of right. sway back and forth. There was a little bit of that. Yeah, no, that's, that's entirely, uh, entirely true. Yeah. I also the reason I focused so hard on purge troopers not only the the clone aspect which is very very interesting. That's very exciting for me. The, the link to the Inquisitoris. Yeah. And that that you had said that one guy you were talking to in one of the Facebook chat uh you know um comments was that the guy had the theory I had read that uh perhaps Gideon was force sensitive Inquisitoris right. and I thought well that's now purge troopers make super sense. It absolutely does. Uh, and so that's and what a great way to actually bring in even more depth from canon and bring in some Cal Kestis, uh, you know, maybe even a few of the brothers or sisters that might have blasted or, you know, so there's all kinds of stuff we yeah. can still draw from. Uh, certainly, we're going to get uh, we're heading on a trajectory to where, uh, you know, to have Jedi coming up. Certainly Ahsoka Tano and possibly Sabine Wren, but we know Bo-Katan. We have all these, like, the stakes are really stacked for the good guys. You know, so to up the ante on the bad guys side, but beyond the dark, the, the dark saber, now we have these. You have uh, a wonderful opportunity yes. to give closure to some characters, which I don't want to call them loose ends, but let's let's be frank here. Jedi, known Jedi in the wind right now. You've mm-hmm. got, I'm going to say Ahsoka. We know she's not part of the Order, but... For all intents and purposes, she counts. Yeah. You have Ahsoka yes. Tano out there. Yes. There's a very real possibility that Cal Kestis, the protagonist from Jedi Fallen Order, is still yeah. out there. Yes. Ezra Bridger yeah. is still Ezra out there. Bridger, yeah. They've announced that the uh, the uh, Fallen Order series is going to be a trilogy of games. Oh, that would so be fantastic. Two more stories. Oh, great. Cal Kestis, yeah. So... I mean, let's just go completely fan like fantasy here and go like let's say there's a reason to get all three of those people together along with Mando, Grief, 
Kara, Bo-Katan and her people to have this f- big like final confrontation. Certainly. It would only make sense that Moff Gideon is something more like perhaps being an Inquisitor and that those are in fact purge troopers. And then to, from the Fallen Order game, there's also the the Inquisitor that he rescues and and she you know recant you know the the uh, the Force user yeah uh, the Dark Force user she was a, a Night Witch. That's right, a Night Witch. Pardon me. Yeah. So so there's lots of Force users still. You know. That's like, right. Um, uh, ostensibly, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was the uh, sort of the Jedi that was based on sort of Native American. Uh, oh, uh, a novel where he runs uh, off with Asajj Ventress. Quinlan so, Voss. Quinlan Voss is ostensibly still alive at this point. Yeah. Uh, so there, you know, there is, you know, when, when gone, last of the Jedi will he be is a misnomer. <laughs> it really is, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a real, oh, where was I going to go with this? I totally lost. Oh, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Inquisitors for a second. So, I mean, for the casual for the casual fan who doesn't has no idea what we're talking about, That's um, true. we know that the Emperor and Darth Vader did not single-handedly go out into the galaxy and slaughter all the Jedi, that they had they had to have some help. So again, we have this core of uh, force-trained soldiers, the, the Inquisitorum, who were commanded by Darth Vader, but really kind of operated fairly independently. And they were essentially dark force users who helped track down and either convert or kill anybody who was left. We see the beginning of it in the Clone Wars, where in those episodes that where Ahsoka rescues the Force sensitive children. That's right. Uh, that like even back then, Palpatine is is trying to Jedi style acquire younglings with Force abilities. Yeah, I mean, Inquisitors were. I want to say that they were introduced uh, Legends back in the D six West End games. Yes, there was a. Uh, they called him High Inquisitor Tremaine. And he was a the failed student of uh, of a what was his name, a Jedi, uh, Corvin Shelvey, who basically failed his student. His student turned to the dark side and became this Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. And then we never hear about them again. They they pop up sort of. They were kind of a staple in the role playing game, but then Absolutely. they kind of modified that uh, for Rebels when we started seeing these Inquisitors, and then they became these these nameless characters that just carried. They were either brother or sister and a number. Yeah, they get you into, uh, in the comics, if you haven't in- in- encountered it, Vader trains them all. Yeah. And uh, he he takes a limb uh, or wounds each one in in, in succession. Right. Uh, to teach them about loss and hatred. Yeah. And it's, it's actually super crazy cool. They They form a plot to try to assassinate Vader and fail horribly. What's interesting about the whole the 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 numbering and naming convention for these guys is that they don't actually tell you, they don't on the nose tell you how many there are. So no. I mean, there is every possibility, and I say it's a possibility. But if we're gonna make if we're gonna try and connect those dots, let's go all the way. And uh, yeah, um, Moff Gideon may be an Inquisitor. There's at least ten. Yeah, they, they yep. hit the ground with the fifth and the seventh and the ninth. Yep. Um, yeah. I think the second sister is in the Fallen Ordered game, uh, and assumedly the the Grand Inquisitor, who's who's dead, uh, is uh, the the you know the de facto leader yeah. underneath, right below Vader, uh, and he was a fallen uh, Jedi Temple Guard. 
Oh yeah, yeah, I guess so. That's so, right. You know, they, and they also um, the the ninth sister from the Fallen Order game was a was a Padawan that they corrupted. That's right. Yeah, so they I mean they were drawing from all these. Yeah, they were definitely trying to. Uh, they didn't want super powerful beings that they couldn't control that would challenge them for the the rule of two, but they certainly needed somebody that could wield a lightsaber. Yeah. That could and, stand up yeah. to a Jedi. Yeah. Interesting stuff going forward. So yeah, that's uh sort of the, the climax of the, uh, the episode is this, you know, the tracking devices in place and do we still have, do they still have the asset? Yes. So, I mean, given everything that just happened with the, the transmission from Pershing, you know, there's a there is a requirement for whatever it is that the remnant is doing. They need more uh, uh, more blood with a high M count, and it looks like they're going to be coming for the child, doubly hard now. Now doubly. that they've got a got a tracking device on them, so definitely leads its uh, lends itself to that whole crash collision course thing that we've sort of talked about before. So again, we're now into uncharted waters. And, you know, short of like, I know we kind of joked about it, but getting the band back together. But at this oh, point, um, I went back and I thought about it a little bit harder too. like um, they say that Gideon was an ISB officer. And I, I had sort of posited, what about, you know, bringing back, oh, my Lord, what's his name? Uh, Callus. Callus yes. was also an ISB officer. He was, yeah. Is there a chance that they know each other? That's sort of our first uh, dip into the ISB. Right? Yeah. Realistically, there's some definitely in the West End games, but um, our first character that's uh, of that nature. Yeah. You know, I mean, if Gideon is this moth, yeah. certainly he's had power for a while. Sure. I mean, he could have certainly named himself Moth after the fall of the Empire. That would be easy to do. Yeah. But yeah, if he's at sub, some sort of res- level of. Um, of authority within the empire, I would think his officers would know him. I would think so too. And I mean, having a guy like Callus who worked on the inside for so long could be a strategic advantage going forward. And ostensibly the, the commander of the ISB or a high ranking member of the ISB would know about the traitor implicitly. Of course they would. Yeah. Yeah, for sure they would. So that's it. That's the siege in a long nutshell. <laughs> uh-huh. I we're gonna get Ahsoka next episode. Uh, You're gonna call it next episode for sure. I think, I think next episode we're gonna get Ahsoka. I think right. that we're certainly going to get a mid-season trailer. Uh, I'll be looking for that. Social, yeah, just watch the social media because they don't really air that stuff on the, you know, Disney Network. Um, yeah, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call Ahsoka next episode. We're definitely heading for some sort of three pronged approach to a Mexican standoff. Yep. Uh, with respect to to Mandalorians, to our our cast of, of heroes, and the uh, the Gideon and the uh, Dark Purge troopers, whatever we're gonna call them. Yeah. I just wanted to say, did you did you watch the holiday special, the Lego holiday? Special? I've started it. I have not finished it. Yeah, there's some neat stuff there. I know we're off topic from the Mandalorian, but there's yep. some neat stuff there with respect to what's canon, if that is in fact canon. Oh, cool. Uh, we move beyond Rise of Skywalker in the timeline. Oh, excellent. And so we get to see Rey, and I don't, spoilers, it's, it's a cartoon. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get to see Rey trying to train Finn to be a Jedi, which oh, is one cool. of John Boyega's crazy complaints about yep. they drop that from his story. Well, they let's be. To it in Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, let's be honest. Like, you you get you can't really deny that that's what it was set up for that he was potentially going to be. Yeah, 
and then to that drop was a that huge or... drop ball. That yeah, was a huge for sure. Drop ball for me, I'd love to see a, a, a some sort of final, uh, you know, some sort of nice requisition reparation. For that <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. Does exactly. that make it any easier? I don't. I mean, I know a lot of people. My wife particularly has mentioned where it's like. Hey, you know, the flip side of that is for every complaint he makes, it's like looking a gift horse in the mouth, right? And I'm like, listen, like that, there's some truth to that. But at the same time, like they really did him a disservice by setting him up to be this thing and then not following through with it. And I think that kind of goes back to what I've said all along about why do you have a Star Wars story group if you're not going to be consistent? Oh, and this is it. And it uh-huh. also showed me that they were relying more up upon their logarithms than what actually they yeah. thought would be just. Yeah. Uh, and to, to, to further the, the holiday special thing, the, the plot point becomes Ray is disenchanted. She then finds uh, an object similar to a holocron that lets her enter the nether regions and therefore travel through time in a lighthearted way oh, to experience cool. other Jedi training their Padawans. Really? But it does lean heavily into the time travel aspect, the world between worlds thing, world between worlds thing. And, uh, Palpatine trying to come back after he's dead. Yeah. Through the wormhole to come back to life. And she actually has to team up with Vader. Oh, wow. And, and it's actually, you know, it's, it's kind of neat. I know it's, it's framed in such a kitty way, but there's yeah. some neat things that are canon that are post rise of Skywalker. Yeah. That are very interesting to me. Check it out guys. Well, it's interesting because now that just opens up an avenue for somebody else to explore it in a more adult way. Absolutely. And since that that moment in Rebels, when I I literally might have pulled two handfuls of hair out of my head going, time travel is a thing now. Yeah. We can literally go back and revisit any moment in Star Wars. Yeah. And completely change it. Yeah. Um, So it it led me to think, like, could there not be, like, remember What If? I do. Yes, I do. Yep. Wouldn't that be a great thing to have a Star Wars what if yeah. series or even novels or even, Didn't even they do, like a side shot of... Wasn't there a comic series that kind of did that? Well, the the new novel the, for the 40th anniversary of Empire is called From a Certain Point of View. Yeah. And they retell stories from different angles. Right. And so there's there's an element of that. Uh, okay. Where characters are mis, misinterpreting situations and the, there's like almost like a... a Gildenstern and Rosencrantz angle. On oh, okay. Things. Yeah. It's neat though. It's, it's certainly neat. Cool. Well, I think that's about it. I think we've covered everything we can cover on the siege, uh, uncharted waters. So let's keep our eyes peeled. I think starwars.com is probably a good, uh, a good resource to see what's going on in the way. If, uh, we're going to get that trailer that you think's coming mm. and, uh, I'm definitely going to be uh, keeping my ear to the ground for... Uh, so stoked. We're halfway there, and there's yeah. so much exposition, but so little has happened that I'm just like, oh my God, they're going to pack tons into these next four episodes. They really are. Yeah. Um, four weeks left to go. For those of you who've been with us from the beginning, thank you. For those of you who are just joining now, go back and check out our uh, last five episodes to get caught up to uh, where we are now. And I just want to say to everybody, thanks for sticking with us. There's lots more to come. On Fandom Power presents The Fandalorian. And until next week, gentlemen, may the Force be with you. And also with you. And this is the way. This is the way. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Fandom Power. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about another one of your favorite fandoms. Fandom Power is a Sawcast production.
Have you ever wanted to start a podcast, but you didn't know where to begin? Maybe you'd like to try podcasting without having to invest in any recording equipment. Do you have an idea for a show, but you're not sure how to develop it? Let Sawcast Productions take care of all of that so you can focus on what it is you want to say. Sawcast Productions offers podcasting solutions ranging from recording and basic editing to fully produced episodes complete with all the audio embellishments of a broadcast quality show. When your show is ready, Sawcast Productions can distribute it too. Contact us online today. So, what do you want to say? 